The views and opinions expressed by tonight's guest and topic of discussion do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of Spaced Out Radio. Spaced Out Weekend, Spaced Out Radio Limited, its hosts, syndicated carriers, or anyone associated with this broadcast. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of this broadcast or podcast without the express written consent of Spaced Out Radio or Spaced Out Radio Limited is strictly prohibited. Listener discretion is advised. British Columbia to you listening around the world. This is Spaced Out Radio with host Dave Scott. They let us play with all our toys. They let us think that we're big boys. They let us make a lot of noise, but we're in They let us think we're Superman. You can follow us on our website, spacedoutradio.com, on iTunes, and tune in. Follow Dave on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio. On Facebook at Spaced Out Radio Show, or on our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. Are you playing with Bigfoot and aliens again? Uh, Dad, you gotta stop haunting the goat. It's scaring them. All right, seriously, put down the pointy sticks. Okay! Game on! Game on! Game on! Word is. Alright, alright, alright. Buckle up, space travelers. It's time to go for a ride on Spaced Out Radio. Mr. Bumblefoot, Dave is ready for liftoff. Seriously, Dave? Really? Aren't you a little old for a tinfoil hat? I am. Toby. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Please take your seat above us. We will be able to take care of the people. 
And welcome to Space Out Radio tonight. I am your host, Dave Scott, and it's good to have you along for the ride on this Tuesday, March 28th. Wednesday, March 29th, if you're on the East Coast or over in the United Kingdom and elsewhere across this world. We are live right here in Uncle Jimbo's cabin, right here in the Great White North. So we are live seven days a week. We welcome in everyone listening in on WQEE 99 Rock the Key in Georgia at SpacedOutRadio.com, on Spreaker, on the United Public Radio Network, Renegade Talk Radio, the High Plains Talk Radio Network, and on Revolution Radio. Mr. Ron Bumblefoot Thal, formerly of Guns N' Roses, currently of Art of Anarchy, is the man behind our music. Bumblefoot rocks us in and out of every show as he is the official sound of SOR. Hey, if you're a social media junkie like I am, do me a favor. Follow us on Twitter, at Spaced Out Radio. Give our Facebook page a like, Spaced Out Radio Show. On Instagram, you can follow me at Dave Scott, SOR. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. Tune us in on TuneIn. Download our shows from iTunes. We're all also on radioguide.fm, Talkstream Live, and on Stitcher. And of course, our website is spacedoutradio.com. And if you head on over to patreon.com, we have some really cool offers for you there as well for as low as $1 a month to become a Spaced Out Radio patron. If you want to take part in this show, you have to do me a favor because we do not take phone calls. Sign into one of the chat rooms. Either on Revolution Radio, on Spreaker, on the UPRN chat room, on our website at spacedoutradio.com, or if you're a member of the SOR Space Travelers Club on Facebook, or if you're on Twitter, just use the hashtag spacedoutradio. I will get to your questions and comments in there as well. If you head to our website for just five bucks a month, you could become an SOR Space Traveler. We got some pretty cool swag to hand your way, and we got a brand new news section called the Encounter Online that deals with everything paranormal, courtesy of our editors eric markham and everett themer you can also check out my latest blog there as well and we have the sor sightlines report from researcher mike schmidt who wants you to record your experience so he can investigate it for you we bring in our terrestrial stations at this time tuning us in down in noon in georgia on wqee 99 rock the key the home of the walking dead we are also live in new orleans on 107.7 fm the united public radio network in over 160 countries around the world we are live in las vegas on renegade talk radio and on revolution radio remember the double r machine is a donation station financed by you the valued listener head on over to freedomslips.com and donate today Tonight is going to be an amazing look into the field of ufology and one that we have never tackled on this show before. We have heard so many stories about different spaceships on this show, from black triangles to lit up rods and orbs, that it makes you wonder what the hell is flying in our friendly skies. We have also heard from numerous researchers and experiencers alike to get a feel for what they've seen and gone through. But... Tonight, we take a look at some professional experiencers. And this is where tonight's guest, Gary Hazeltine, comes into play. 
Gary runs a website called Proofos, which stands for Police Reporting UFO Sightings. Yes, a website dedicated to the stories and experiences of those wearing the badge. Gary, a retired detective constable, started this site in 2002, January to be exact. He served with British Transport Police for 24 years, and he has a database of stories and information that is divided into two separate categories, one for on-duty and one for off-duty police sightings. There's over 500 stories cataloged, and tonight Gary is staying up late to share those stories with you, our value listener. To check out the website, go to Proofos, it's PR. R-U-F-O-S-Proofos-Police-Database.co.uk. That's Proofos-Police-Database.co.uk. Gary, welcome to Space Out Radio tonight. Good to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on. How you been? I'm fine, and thank you for inviting me onto your show. Well, the fact that you are up at 5 o'clock in the morning, your time right now, is very, very impressive that you would do that for all of us and our listeners, not only here in North America, but around the world. So really the honor goes to you, and thank, and a big thanks from all of us for you taking the time out of your sleeping time to be with us. Well, I haven't gone to bed, so I am fairly nocturnal anyway. Anybody that knows me will know that I'm pretty nocturnal. Uh, but what's sleep anyway? Uh, I, I, I'm passionate about this subject. So it's always a pleasure to do a show. Have you ever talked to a lot of radio stations in North America, or is this something new for you? No, no, I've done lots of uh, radio shows uh, in uh, the U.S. and Canada, uh, including Coast to Coast on a couple of occasions. Do you find that, you know, the sightings and the stories that you hear from the U.K. are quite different than what you hear out of North America, or is every story special to you? No, I think I think if you look at this subject collectively over the history of the last 70, 75 years, and you look at it on a worldwide basis, one of the most impressive things for uh, my belief that a small proportion of sightings are ET is the commonality from all around the world. You know, people experience almost identical sightings in whichever country you can think of. So let's start with you for a second. Back in 2002, you decide to start Proofos. What led you to starting this? Did you have your own experience as an officer? Uh, Well... I had a, originally a sighting when I was 16. Um, do you want me to tell you about that? Absolutely. we got three hours for with you, so we want to hear every story that you could possibly jam in. Right. Well, basically what happened was uh, I was walking my then-girlfriend home, and uh, it was one of those rare nights in England where it's no clouds. It was a lovely summer's evening. Not a cloud in the sky, all the stars are twinkling, lovely warm evening. So I guess it was probably 8, 9 o'clock at night, and it was August time. And as we uh, were on our way to her home, we had to pass along a long, narrow footpath. Uh, and on the one side of the footpath were, as you would say, high school fields. 
uh, and on the other side were a series of what we call in England allotments where people grow their own vegetables uh, and in the middle was this long path. Now at the end of this long path there were houses uh, that you could clearly see with all the electricity on uh, etc in the distance. Uh, when we were about at the darkest point of this long path um, basically we both noticed to our right at about a 60 degree angle a what I can only describe as a bright white light no distinct shape but it was a 60 degree angle it was much bigger than the background stars uh, and what struck me straight away was that I couldn't hear anything and it just appeared to be almost gliding, floating along. Now, what was interesting is if you can imagine that you are walking on a long track straight ahead, as the object passed by us in front of us, and therefore after it had crossed over, we then became behind its flight path, the whole of the street lighting housing in the distance was plunged into darkness through a power cut, power outage, as you would probably say in, in Canada and the States. Uh, rightly or wrongly, my girlfriend, Dawn, uh, became anxious. Uh, well, you know, perhaps she thought that the object had caused this. It seemed a, a bit of a coincidence. We watched in awe uh, as this object very slowly and silently passed by us. And what was strange is that it, when it went a bit further, there was another power cut of the rest of the housing behind the object's flight path that we could again see in the distance now slightly to our left. Now, at the time of this occurring, I'd never ever had any interest in UFOs whatsoever. I'd never read anything. Uh, and But at the time, uh, I was I was walking with Dawn, but pushing my bicycle or cycle. And uh, I, when this object went by, it was generally heading in the direction of where I lived. So I instinctively said, get on the crossbar and I'm going to ride you to the end of the, uh, the alleyway or the footpath. Uh, and get you to your home as quickly as possible, because I want to try to catch up with this object. And that's what we did. So literally, we got, she sat on the crossbar, I rode as quickly as I could to the end of the long footpath, turned right, and about two to three hundred metres away would be her house. All the housing was in darkness, not a street light, no power on whatsoever, and I literally just dropped her at her house and then said bye and then raced on my bicycle as fast as I could back to the same long footpath. Uh, took that, where ended up onto a street called Grange Lane South and then absolutely rode as fast as I could trying to catch up with this object. Now here's the interesting thing is that if you can imagine an area with all the power out, is pretty dark, and you don't usually see that in an urban area. Uh, but it was pitch black, and I'm riding along, and it's completely dark. 
But then near to my home, there is a left-hand bend close to my home, maybe a couple of hundred meters away. And at the point where the road bended to the left or went to the left, the power was on. So if you can imagine this clear demarcation of riding through complete darkness, power outage everywhere, and then on this corner, suddenly all the power's on. And at the point that I reach and go from the darkness into the light, it kind of sounds like a ghost story, but it's not, uh, darkness into light, I looked over my right shoulder and realized that I was slightly ahead of the light by taking riding so fast and this object very slowly moving, I'd managed to get ahead of the light just. So if you can imagine looking over your right shoulder, just a few degrees behind you, and then literally I go around the corner, I turn right onto Westerdale Road, turn right onto Bearsdale Road, and my house was number three, uh, so it was at the top of the road. I dropped my bike outside the house, uh, rush in to the main living room, and my parents uh, sat watching TV. They're having, a, as British people do, having a cup of tea, supper time, as we would say. And I say, come outside, because I've seen this strange light, and I think it's going to cause a power cut. And they just looked at me bemused, as you would. They don't get up. So I quickly run through the hall, into the kitchen, out through the back door, into the garden. I then, at the bottom of the garden, turn around to look back at my house, just in time to see the object, which was now slightly higher in elevation, coming straight over my rooftop. And why I do this, I don't know, but I instinctively put my arm up in the air like I'm answering a question in school, in class, and put it straight up. Now, as soon as the object passes over my hand, so if you can imagine the, or imagine the 90-degree position, and the object went past me, suddenly, as soon as it went past me, the whole area is plunged into a power grid failure. Now, it's ridiculous. How could I predict power cut? And it's at that point there that I realized that whatever that object was, having moved to a second geographical position, that that light must have had some interaction with the power grid. And I rushed inside me. My mother is frantically rushing around to get candles. And I say, I said that there was going to be a power cut. They just totally dismissed it. Coincidence. They, they would, they're not interested at all. And so that's really how my interest in the subject began, uh, and which is pretty weird. But here's a, a more weird thing is that I didn't, we weren't on the phone at that time. So we're talking 1976. We weren't on the phone. We weren't, uh, we didn't have a lot of money. Um, and the nearest phone was about a 10 minute walk away uh, near some shops. So I didn't ring anybody. Who do you ring anyway? If you've never had this kind of experience, who do you ring? It's not the kind of thing that you know. So I didn't actually do anything. I didn't even look in the local papers the next day. Why? I don't know, but I didn't. But what I did do, and the only thing that I could do in 1976, 
it was just before, uh, in certainly in England or in Britain, uh, we started to have video recorders. The early uh, VHS and the Betamax machines were just starting to come into shops. Uh, but that was not yet, and so we certainly couldn't afford one. So the only thing that I could do was to go to the local second-hand bookshop and look for books on UFOs or flying saucers, whichever description you want to apply. And here's the strange thing. The very first book that I got, and I've said this many times, uh, for me is not a coincidence now, was Aliens from Space by Major Donald Kehoe. Now, for those who aren't that familiar with the name, he wrote five books on UFOs, but what made him particularly interesting is that he was a military man, obviously a major, and he had links to many senior military officials, admirals, colonels, generals, that kind of thing, and he was the person who actually founded NICAP, um, which was a major organisation for a long, long time. And so he... You know, when you think of all the thousands of books that have been written on UFOs, flying saucers over the last 70 years, for me to kind of pick up what was really a a very important series of books, the very first book that I get in a second-hand bookshop was the last of his five books. And straight away, when I read inside the, uh, the, the book, which I read quickly, Uh, I came across a section uh, about the New York blackout. And basically, it tells the story that in 1965, it was rumoured that UFOs had triggered this mass uh, power outage that I think affected something like 7 or 8 million people on the seaboard. And, you know, I think they even made a Hollywood film about it, but not UFO-related. And so straight away, I kind of got a validation moment that this was what I was thinking, i.e. that this object had caused the power cut. You know, I'm getting a validation moment saying that this kind of thing had happened before. So I find that a very strange thing. Why that book? Of all the books in all the world, in all the bars, that kind of scenario, it was a very important book. And for me, Major Donald Kehoe is one of, if not the most important figure historically, uh, that I think there is in terms of somebody who always resolutely tried to tell the truth and say that some UFO sightings were extraterrestrial, and that is my belief. So you carried this sighting through you, and you obviously finish high school, you become a police officer. I'm sure you went to college before that. You become a police officer did you start hearing the UFO stories there, or was it a specific call that kind of led you to put together all of these sightings that you now run on a daily basis? No, it's a, it's a very convoluted uh, series of events that, in a sense, pull me into the subject. Uh, from having that sighting at 16, I started to collect UFO books, for a time, but then, uh, as life takes over, I got into a relationship, I had a young baby, um, I then joined the Air Force, the Royal Air Force, 
Um, I then uh, got married. I had another child. Uh, so in a sense, I, life took over and you do the normal things. And I was a police officer in the Royal Air Force for six years. I worked protecting nuclear weapons for three of my six years, which will become relevant later on uh, if we talk about the Rendlesham Forest incident. Why, uh, and that will become apparent why that is uh, uh, involved. And basically, uh, I went away and had a life. And I really did not pursue or actively do anything in ufology whatsoever. If there was something on TV, if I saw a magazine, but really there weren't that many magazines, certainly not in the UK. I joined an organisation called uh, Bufora, British UFO Research Association, as an associate member. But at that time, early on in the 70s and the early 80s, really, it was just a small A5 booklet. And, it, you know, it was black and white. It was not a glossy. Now, here's the interesting thing. So, effectively, I just got get on with life for the next 17, 18 years, uh, become a police officer. I leave the Air Force. I join the British Transport Police. I become a detective. And it's only in around 1995, so from having the sighting in 76, it kicked off my interest. I went away, kind of had a life, but it was actually not until around 1995 that the first of a series of events occurred that led me on a path to become an active researcher. And basically what happened was that as a detective, um, you're in plain clothes, you don't wear uniforms, so you can pretty much wander around your patch, for want of a better uh, expression, and go wherever you want. Well, I remember being on Leeds Railway Station uh, one day in 1995 and going into a big news agent, a well-known news agent in the UK, and uh, on one of the shelves I suddenly saw this uh, A4 glossy colour magazine called UFO Magazine. Uh, certainly something I'd never seen before. And, and I picked it up and I thought, wow, this looks pretty professional. And it was in amongst all the other top magazines of, of all the other types. And that kind of set something in motion in the sense of it reawakened my interest. And I realized, because I was looking through this magazine, <clears throat> that I was reading about pilots chasing UFOs, uh, police officers. There had been one or two sightings historically in books. Uh, military people, radar operators, things like that. And straight away that kind of resonated with me because I was by then already a detective and I was dealing with evidence and I think I knew what, you know, what evidence is and what would stand up in a court of law. And so I looked at these very factual, high-caliber witnesses and thought, this is very interesting and, and it kind of just reawakened my interest. And basically over the next couple of years I started to get the magazine uh, it was bi-monthly when I uh, came across it in 95 it then became monthly so I, I kind of got that and what it also did was fired off my uh, interest to the point where it would advertise various books that had been written in the years whilst I'd not been really following the subject so again I started this process of getting some of the best books that had been written in those interim years. And again, when I read about pilots, 
astronauts, comets, uh, uh, radar operators, sonar operators, air traffic controllers, very credible people uh, and police officers, I thought, you know, why is this subject kind of not on the six o'clock news? Why is it pretty much ridiculed when there are these very credible people? And I was dealing with evidence every day. And if somebody says to me, uh, a pilot chases a UFO and it's confirmed on ground radar and the aircraft radar as well, and it's seen by several aircraft in the sky at the same time, that's very, very good evidence, but not in the media, it seemed. And that kind of began a bit of a frustration. But the strange thing was that the way it manifested itself with me uh, was on a, on a, in an unexpected way because I had never been a writer, never written anything, but a very, unex- well, very strange thing happened was that I went to bed one night. I don't usually remember my dreams, but on this occasion, I woke up with an extremely vivid dream of a scenario that could lead to UFO disclosure which is something that we all talk about now all the time. Now, this would be probably 97, 98, but it was such a vivid dream, and I didn't usually remember my dreams, but it was so vivid that I started to write it down. Now, I didn't write it down as a book. Uh, I wrote it down as a screenplay, Uh, and I'd never written a screenplay in my life. And believe it or not, from that basic premise of characters and scenario within six to eight weeks i'd written the first draft of a screenplay i was a big film buff so it's strange how this worked but i'd never written anything in my life and within six to eight weeks i'd written the first draft completely in the wrong format by the way but it was a readable uh, screenplay um, of this fictional scenario set in the States, a big kind of Hollywood blockbuster. And one of the things that I did was, I thought it was pretty good, but I wanted validation and opinions from my colleagues. So foolishly, I printed it off and and showed it to some of my friends in the police station. And one by one, they kind of read this single script and it kind of ended up going around the police station and various people read it and everybody that read it said, oh, it's a fantastic story, real page turner kind of thing. And they also don't make a great book and I would say, oh, well, I can't write a book, it's a completely different medium, it's a lot more words, but a screenplay is a lot shorter. But anyway, they all liked it. But then I started to think, well, I want somebody who's in the UFO world to read it to see what they think again seeking some kind of validation well here's one of the very very strange things about my journey and i know that it's kind of similar to many other researchers uh who've had strange experiences uh that led them to do what they do um but with me what happened was the very magazine that had reawakened my interest ufo magazine uh, was actually, believe it or not, printed only about 12 miles away from where I worked. Well, you think about the odds of that occurring, that this magazine that had so impressed me was printed 
from a small company less than 12 miles away from where I worked. Now, you think about this, it could have been anywhere in the United Kingdom. And there it was literally on my doorstep. So what I did one Sunday, I remember printing off a copy and put it in a big brown envelope and then driving over to the offices on a Sunday when it was closed and put in this copy uh, of the script through the letterbox uh, with a covering letter explaining about the story and who I was, thinking, well, this guy's probably going to think it's rubbish and never get back to me. Well, I kind of thought that that was what was going to happen. But about uh, six weeks later, suddenly one uh, early evening, I get a phone call out the blue, and it turned out to be the editor of UFO magazine, a guy called Graham Birdsell. And he said, I think it's a brilliant script. It'd make a great film, blah, blah, blah. I'll help you in any way I can. And what he said, uh, which was interesting, was he said, I run a big three-day international conference in Leeds, where I worked. And uh, it's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And we fly speakers in from all around the world. And he said, uh, if you want, you can have a complimentary ticket and see what you think. And again, so I'm getting validation that says from an expert in the subject that it's a very good story, which was nice. It was a compliment. He actually wrote me a letter that I framed because it was such a glowing tribute to it. I framed it. Um, And then basically I got this invite to go to his big international conference. So from having never been to any kind of UFO event, suddenly I've got this kind of like free pass to come and see these international speakers. And that's what I do. So from doing that script, it led to being invited to uh, to come along and go to my first UFO conference, where I heard people like uh, John Mack uh, and I think Bud Hopkins was there at the same time. And uh, I was absolutely knocked out by it. And again... What kind of was strange is that I began, and I didn't realize that at the time, that a level of frustration was beginning to well up inside me at this very credible people, but the subject in the media was being ridiculed. People were frightened to speak out, they feared for their jobs, and there was this, you're crazy if you believe in your thoughts. And yet I looked at it through evidential eyes as a detective and said a pilot chasing and you've got radar confirmations, that's good evidence that would stand up in a court of law. And this conundrum began to develop. And that's literally what then led me back to uh, Graham Burton at the magazine. And in another strange twist, uh, his office that was about 12 miles away originally, they actually moved office to be less than two miles away from my police headquarters. Now, what's the odds of that? So, literally, it was on my doorstep. So, what I I began to do was call in on a regular weekly basis. If I was driving out uh, in the plane car, I'd call in for a cup of tea. That's what police do. Uh, And I got to know Graham Bursell pretty well in the last couple of years of his life before he suddenly died in 2003 of a, of a brain hemorrhage. 
um, which was a, an absolute tragedy. But I got to know him pretty well, and in it, in it's by getting to know him that I had this idea for the police database. And again, this is a strange story of, again, I don't usually remember my dreams, but I woke up with this idea, a very vivid idea, to create a, a UK database, unofficial national database for British police officers uh, to record UFO sightings. And I kind of woke up, wrote a few things down straight away, so vivid, and I then approached Graham Birdsell, who I'd got to know, and, and said, would you allow me to write an article in your magazine? Now, bear in mind, I'd never had any article written and published anywhere. This was a big thing and a massive thrill for me when he said, yes, this is because I like the fact that you're a, a detective, you know what evidence is, and uh, you're going to be presenting police stories. So, uh, very credible from his point of view. So he thought it would be a good addition for the magazine. So basically, that's what happened. So in January 2002, I had my first ever article published in a glossy magazine, UFO magazine, in January 2002. And it was to announce the creation of the database. And it was to cater for police officers in two categories, on duty and off-duty. Now, some people have said to me, well, why, why do you make the distinction? Well, I, I say that a police officer is never off-duty, really, uh, I, uh, and I've done it myself. If you're off-duty and you see some crime taking place, the majority of police officers will not walk away, they'll get involved. So you're still using your same faculties, whether you're on-duty or off-duty, so therefore what's really the difference between you've seen a UFO when you're in uniform or as a detective or, or when you're off duty and you're in the garden with the wife and you see something straight, you're still using the same thought processes and know how to write up and formulate a chronological a story of the event that you've witnessed. So for me, I make that distinction uh, that I have a category for on-duty sightings and the majority are on-duty sightings, but there's perhaps a 20-25% percentage that are off-duty, but they're, for me, still as valuable because they're still uh, recording the, the event using their police skills that they've learned over the years. So that's kind of the long uh, series of steps that led me to become an active researcher. But what was strange to come after that was... The fact that once I'd created the database and police officers, generally retired officers, started to approach me uh, with their accounts, stories, a strange thing that I never anticipated happened. UFO groups, societies in the UK began to email me and write to me saying, oh, we hear you've got this database, would you speak at our conference? Now, bear in mind, I'd never done any public speaking at that time. Uh, this was suddenly all very new. Uh, but the strange thing was, was that I'd always, uh, throughout my life, had always been a confident speaker, but maybe never had a platform or a regular platform. Uh, and I was comfortable in generally in front of crowds speaking, but I'd never done public speaking as such. So when they asked me, 
and when I began to do lectures, I found that it was like water off a duck's back. It just came very naturally for me, and I never really felt nervous in front of an audience. And then as time went on, you then start to get asked to do media work and preparing documentaries. And most people run a mile. Most of my police colleagues would run a mile away from the press for fear of putting their foot in it. But for me, it just seemed to be something that was very natural. And I don't know where that comes from, uh, but, but I'm, I guess I'm pretty uh, pleased and, and lucky that it is the, that way because it's over a period of years now, and now I do a lot of international lectures uh, in many countries, it's taken me on a strange and weird journey where you become a communicator to a large number of people. And that's something I never, ever envisaged when I had the sighting all those years ago in 1976. So that's basically how it came about. Now, when you started the website... And once again, I want to give the name to people. It's Prufos Police Database uk. Prufos is spelled P R U F O S Police Database uk. So when you started that website, what was the reaction from your fellow officers? Were they happy that there was a site like this where they could anonymously give stories and tales of what they had seen or what they had been reported to? Or did it take a while for fellow officers to warm up to finally open up to tell you what they had experienced? Uh, In reality, it was a mixture, but the initial reaction is uh, you're mad. Natural one. Not mad as in mad as a fruitcake, but they all thought it was a bit of a giggle and... Uh, you know, I'd, I'd get people saying, oh, my inspector's an alien and, you know, beam me up, Scotty, and all those kind of things, which is general police banter, as we would call in the UK. And, I, and it was all very good-natured. Uh, but slightly on the sinister side, I was, uh, at that time, a, 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 an up-and-coming detective. Uh, and, you know, I, I, at that time, I probably had ambitions to go higher up the the ranks in terms of a detective I wanted to be a career detective and I remember um, being pulled uh, in front of uh, my detective sergeant uh, and he said what's this about this uh, website that you've set up and I said yeah yeah I'm I'm into UFOs Uh, I I wanted to do it and I've set it up for police officers and he said "Uh, I don't think that would be very good for your career and I said, what do you mean? He says, well, I just don't think it will, will sit very well with your career. And I said, well, I don't tell you what to do in your spare time, in your hobbies. I says, that's what it is. It's a, a passion, a hobby for me. I said, I'm doing it in my own time. I'll, I'll be professional and I won't bring the force into disrepute in any way. I'm very level-headed. You know, why should it cause conflict? You know, but that's basically what my detective sergeant said. Now, little did I realise that actually as the years went by uh, that I began to experience uh, police harassment's not the right word, but uh, elements where my own force started to take a dim view of the research I was doing, especially as I got more and more cases going on the database and I started to appear on radio or TV documentaries and things like that they didn't really like it as time went on 
even though everybody said, oh, you're very credible and you come over really well on the TV and everything, uh, I then started to have the influence where more um, conditions were being imposed on me, on what I could say, like when I first launched the database, I said I was Detective Constable 1877, which was my badge number, as you would probably say. Uh, in England, we would call it your collar number. Uh, and uh, that was mine, 1877. And so I'd put it on there, DC, Detective Constable, 1877, Gary Time, British Transport Police. Uh, but it was always saying this is done in an unofficial capacity. It was always clearly marked. Uh, and then I'd list these stories that were building up over the years. Uh, but over time, they then started to say, well, uh, you can't say that your collar number anymore. And I said, why? It's already out there, being translated into many different countries uh, on the web. Uh, we, we don't want you to say that. And then as time went on, they said, oh, we don't want to say, we don't want you to tell people which force you belong to. And I said, what? The genie's you can't put the genie back in the bottle after all these years. doesn't make sense. I says, it's already out there. You cannot put it back. Well, that's what they said. Uh, and, you know, moving forward a few years, eventually a situation occurred in 2009 uh, where the Ministry of Defence uh, in the UK, which had run a UFO reporting desk, um, similar to your kind of Project Blue Book, small office, uh, staffed by one person with a couple of admin staff. Uh, basically, that had run for over 50 years, and then suddenly, in I think it was late uh, sort of uh, autumn time 2009, they suddenly announced that they were closing the UFO desk after over 50 years of being in existence. And then I suddenly thought, well, wow, this is a bit of an opportunity for me to contact all the police forces in the UK. Now, unlike in the States, uh, in England, you have regions that we would call counties, geographical regions of the country. And in, in the UK, there were 43 police forces. And so I wrote to all the chief constables uh, saying, you're probably not aware of this, but the Ministry of Defence has just closed its UFO reporting facility and all the sightings that you would send to the Ministry of Defence, you've now nowhere to send it to. However, you are still going to get sightings. What are you going to do? Because you have to be seen to be professional. And what I suggested to them is that, would they consider when they had a sighting reported uh, from a member of the public or a police officer that they then pass that sighting through to me to investigate in my off-duty time? And uh, within two weeks, I'd got 24 replies back uh, straight away uh, from senior uh, officers in respective forces saying, we weren't aware of this. Thank you for telling us this. Uh, we'll have a look at it and we'll get back to you. And within a month, two of the forces had actually said, we are going to make you what's called a SPOC, a single point of contact, SPOC. And uh, if we have any sightings, we'll pass them directly to you. 
and I thought, yes, I've made a major breakthrough here uh, on a national scale. It's because if one if one or two forces do it, probably all of them or the majority of them will follow suit. And then the next thing that I that happened, which was more sinister and was a bit of a shock, was that I got pulled uh, one day to see my chief superintendent, my area commander, uh, very high rank, uh, extremely high rank. Uh, he was the top guy in my area. And he said, uh, I understand that you've written letters to various chief constables. And I said, yes. I said, I've written one to my own chief constable who was new to the job. And he said, well, that's the problem. He said that it seems that our chief constable, my new chief constable, as it were, had had a phone call from another chief constable, and it was never specified which force it was, but he, but the, the story was, the gist of the story was, that the chief constable rang my chief constable and said, who is this nut that you've got with this police database about your force? And because my chief constable felt embarrassed, he then instructed my chief superintendent to instigate formal misconduct hearings against me where my job was on the line. So for writing a private letter that clearly said I'm writing in off-duty capacity, but by the way, this is information that I think you need to know. Uh, so just purely factual, uh, I was then being deemed to have brought the force into disrepute, uh, although I could never see how you could do that um, because it was a private letter and it was just full of information and asking, you know, to make them aware and, and ask them to send information to me in a private capacity. And uh, basically, I was then put under investigation for a year, which then culminated in a what was called a misconduct hearing. And the ramifications were, fortunately, that there's two types of misconduct hearing. Mine was a level two, which meant that you couldn't get sacked. But for a long time, my pension was on the line, and that was a possibility. But they decided to go for the slightly lesser misconduct. Uh, and I ended up getting a 12-month written warning for just writing a private letter to all these chief constables telling about something that had factually happened. Now, what I found frustrating was that if I'd have chained myself naked to the railings outside a police station and said, oh, mommy, oh, me, uh, and chanted, uh, you know... That, that kind of thing, then I could have understood bringing the force into disrespect. But to this day, I can never understand how uh, I actually did that. Uh, but that's what happened, and that was one of the um, reasons why I decided to retire early. I could have gone for another six years, but I decided to retire because uh, six years early because I realized that if that was the way that, the, in a sense, the climate was going, that it was probably going to be only a matter of time before they would try to get me up on some other offence, or which they deemed to be an offence. So I, I just saw that the writing was on the wall. It was going to get more and more difficult. So why, you know, if I could afford to, which I could, um, I decided to take the risk. And I'd already began to formulate the idea of retiring to launch my own... Uh, magazine, an e-zine, and by that stage, in 2013, 
uh, when I actually retired, I'd already approached many of the world's top researchers and asked them would they would they write either as a regular columnist or as an occasional contributor because they've got, they've got their own ongoing research and books and whatever. And literally, uh, because of the positive attitude that I had from them, it gave me confidence to retire early. And on the 31st of March, uh, 2013, I retired. And in April, I launched the magazine. And here we are four years on, and we've got readers in many countries and uh, lots of readers in the States and Canada. Uh, and it's called UFO Truth, easy, um, which is www.ufotruthmagazine.co.uk. And it does feature regular articles by all the top people in the world. Your Steve Bassett, your Richard Dolans have all written, Peter Robbins, AJ Javad from Brazil. And I, I wanted an international flavour. And I've got that because I've got top researchers from Europe, top researchers from South America, uh, top researchers in the States. Uh, you know, so it's a very, uh, uh, well, a worldwide magazine. And, and I want it to... Uh, continue and expand uh, for that reason because the message that I'm trying to put across is that in a small percentage of cases, i.e. just 3%, that residue is points very clearly towards ET and the actual kind of like tagline for the magazine is it's a magazine for those people who believe that some UFO sightings do represent uh, E.T. visiting the Earth and interacting with it. So that's how that came about. But, you know, by all means, ask me any questions on police sightings, uh, and I'll gladly give you many, many cases. We only have about two minutes before we have to go to our first break here, Gary. But I'm curious, when you told your fellow officers about how they were treating you, out of more embarrassment than somebody at the top levels of government trying to shut you down. What was the reaction from your colleagues and fellow officers in the way you were being treated through this? Well, the ones I worked with closely, fellow detectives, were disgusted what was happening, um, but unlike the perception that as time went on, police forces were more transparent, certainly within my own force, uh, the officers were powerless to do anything. They couldn't speak out. And uh, they weren't uh, able to support me uh, because they feared themselves uh, getting involved. So basically they sympathized. Uh, and in the end, I think they thought it was probably the right thing that I do that I left early. Rachel is asking a question here. we got about 90 seconds. She is asking, Gary, do you ever fear that with your website that you risk some of your colleagues' reputations? Well, no, not at all, because uh, the way that I deal with it is that uh, I fully understand and appreciate what's involved. So generally, if it's a serving officer, they request anonymity, and that's fine as long as uh, they prove themselves to me. So if an officer says they've had a site and they're still serving, and they don't want to go public, I'll say, prove to me who you say you are. Once they do that, they're then granted confidential status, a bit like a press source, and then I'm happy to tell the story. I can sometimes change the location uh, so as not to give them away. So th that is paramount, and uh, I would never give anybody's 
details away that didn't want their details to be made public because if, once I do that, then my credibility would be, uh, be blown. And Gary's website, if you want to check it out, is Proofos. or make that Proofos, policedatabase.co.uk. It's a good site. Make sure you check it out during the break while you're listening to some commercials. We'll be right back right after this. From coast to coast to coast, Blacklight Uncharted is taking on the paranormal across Canada. From ghostly hauntings to the UFOs flying above in conjunction with MUFON Canada, they're closely investigating what's going on in the northern skies and checking out the apparitions that walk among us. Check out our videos right here at spacedoutradio.com. We want to know your thoughts, we want to hear your experiences, and we want you to share your stories. The answers are out there, and we intend to find them. Would you like to become one of our space travelers? All you have to do is click on the space travelers icon at spacedoutradio.com. For only $5 a month, you can get access to some great prizes, as well as private monthly shows, newsletters, and a members-only section on our website. Become a space traveler today. The third Monday of every month, Spaced Out Radio is going to bring you a different look at everything paranormal. Welcome to the reporters. Jim Mallard, Vanessa Hogel, Denise Garcia, and Christina George join me, Dave Scott, for a look at the weird and strange from the other side of the microphone. We'll break down ghosts, UFOs, cryptids, and the people investigating them. The paranormal media has never been heard like this. Come listen to the reporters. It's paranormal news at its finest. Welcome to The Encounter. At spaceoutradio.com, The Encounter Online is SOR's trusted news source for everything weird and strange going on around the world. This is news editor Eric Markham. Our team of journalists are scouring the planet for those strange stories that rarely make the mainstream. No fear-mongering or fake news here. Head over to spaceoutradio.com and encounter The Encounter. Hey, this is Canadian Paranormal Investigator Mike Moore. The third Wednesday of every month, I'll be teaming up with Dave Scott to bring you Ghosts of the Great White North. Each month, we will bring on guests from across Canada to discuss their ghostly encounters. Canada is a paranormal hotbed with stories you've never heard, so we're going to bring them to you. So get comfy on your Chesterfield, grab a donut, and join us, eh? Have you had an experience you can't explain? Had a run-in with ghosts, maybe Bigfoot, or seen lights in the sky? Hi, I'm Mike Schmidt from the SOR Sightlines. I'm here to investigate your sighting. Head to spacedoutradio.com and fill out a report on the sightlines. All your information is 100% confidential, and I will help you figure out what you've been seeing. File your report, and let's find out the answers together. Visit purpleplates.com today. For over 40 years, the Purple Energy Plates have been delivering amazing results for their many customers. Inspired by the great genius Nikola Tesla, the harmony, healing, and energetic effects of the plates have proven over and over to be beneficial and often miraculous to thousands of customers. With their money-back guarantee and the many benefits, how can you afford not to get one? Check their site for daily specials and choose from their many energy products. You won't be sorry. 
Visit them today at purpleplates.com for mind, body, and spirit, and expect a miracle. Are you interested in advertising on Spaced Out Radio? Head to our website at spacedoutradio.com and click on our advertising tab. There, you will find an assortment of ways you can get your product out there with us, from radio commercials to banners and social media. Have a product you like our hosts to endorse? We can do that too. Visit spacedoutradio.com for more details. Have you got your Cosmic Passport? If you need one, tune in to Cosmic Passport on Spaced Out Weekend. This is Elizabeth Anglin, ET experiencer, spirit medium, and host of Cosmic Passport. Each weekend, I'll be bringing you interviews and support from other paranormal experiencers and the best in intuitive spiritual guidance from across the globe. It's all happening starting at 9 p.m. Pacific Time, midnight Eastern, on spacedoutradio.com. From British Columbia to Northern California, Pacific North Weird has Cascadia covered. Check out our feature videos at spacedoutradio.com, where I, Vincent Zunza, and my super sleuth partner, Alexandra Sullivan, track down the weird and strange stories from around the Pacific Northwest from Bigfoot to Mel's Hole, and everything in between. This is what makes life exciting. So why report the normal when we can report the Pacific North Weird? Right here at spacedoutradio.com. Oh, there's only one way to rock. Loud and proud. In high definition, Radio 702 Rocks, Las Vegas. Every Saturday and Sunday night, as Dave Scott wanders aimlessly in the wilderness, you can come hang out with me, James Tyson, and Spaced Out Weekend. Starting at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, I'll take you along as we talk with some of the best experts in their fields. SpacedOutRadio.com is the place to find us, so sit down, relax, put your feet up, enjoy the topics like the paranormal, supernatural, intuitiveness, and so much more. Hope to see you there. Don't have time to listen to Spaced Out Radio Live? Wherever you are, the car, the office, the shower, or even if you're traveling, we're right here for you. Each Spaced Out Radio show can be found on iTunes, TuneIn, and on our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. It's the perfect way for you to catch up on our shows. For more information, just head over to our website, spacedoutradio.com, and tune in to us today. Views and opinions expressed by tonight's guest and topic of discussion do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of Spaced Out Radio. Spaced Out Weekend, Spaced Out Radio Limited, its hosts, syndicated carriers, or anyone associated with this broadcast. Would you like to connect with us? Head to spacedoutradio.com for all your latest show info. And hit us up on Twitter using the hashtag SpacedOutRadio. Now, back to Dave Scott and SOR. Welcome back to the second hour of Spaced Out Radio tonight. I am your host, Dave Scott. Good to have you along for the ride. Tomorrow night on the program, Brett Collins Shepard is going to join us. He's a friend of Ken Johnson, who we had on just a couple weeks ago, talking NASA and UFOs. Yes, the UFO chat continues tomorrow night, 9 p.m. Pacific, 
midnight eastern time at spacedoutradio.com we want to welcome in our terrestrial radio stations the united public radio network live on 107.7 fm in new orleans and over 160 countries around the world we're also live on wqee 99 rock the key down in noon in georgia the home of the walking dead thank you for enjoying your nights with us we're live in las vegas on renegade talk radio and on revolution radio Remember, the Double R Machine is a donation station financed by you, the valued listener. Head on over to freedomslips.com and donate today. Bill Cardwell has set the password for tonight in the SOR Space Travelers Club. Pogonophobia. Pogonophobia is your password. Make sure you use it wisely, space travelers, because Pogonophobia is your password for the night. If you want to follow us on social media, you can do so on Twitter, at Spaced Out Radio. Also use the hashtag Spaced Out Radio if you want to connect with us live during the show as well. You can also give our Facebook page a like, Spaced Out Radio Show. Tune us in on TuneIn, download this show on iTunes. We're also on RadioGuide.fm, TalkStream Live, and on Stitcher. Our website is SpacedOutRadio.com where we have a plethora of features for you, including joining the SOR Space Travelers Club for just 5 bucks a month. You can also head over to Patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and become a Space Out Radio patron for as low as $1 a month. Check it out today. Our guest tonight, all the way from the UK, is Gary Heseltine. He founded Proofos back in 2002. Police reports of UFOs, make that police reports, reporting UFO sightings, the website proofospolicedatabase.co.uk. Gary, welcome back. Thank you very much for having me. Right before the break, we were talking about what was happening with your fellow officers and everything when you started up Proofos. As people started noticing what you were doing, with this website, how quickly was it before officers, both on duty and off, started responding with what they had seen strange or what they had been called to that was strange in the sky? Well, there's there's two uh, two parts to the answer to this. Uh, just before I uh, had the article published in January 2002, which was the official launch, Probably in November of 2001, my own force, the British Transport Police, uh, had just created its own intranet, and uh, which was kind of the up-and-coming thing there with the onset of the uh, internet, etc. And they had a section there for hobbies. So you had your running clubs, your martial arts clubs. And I thought, well, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, in January, I knew that there was an article coming out in January, I'm going to create my own UFO group uh, and see what response I get. So I put a few uh, bits of uh, factual information up there about so many pilots, so many radar operators had made positive statements about UFOs, etc. And like I said, I got a, a lot of ribbon, but because it was within my own force, it went force-wide. And there were about two and a half thousand in the force. And basically, as soon as I put it out, I started to get one or two emails from people I didn't know, fellow officers based around the UK, who said not that they'd had an on-duty sighting in the BTP, but what I started to get was 
military stories. I used to be in the army. I used to be in the air force, and officers would straight away began emailing me privately to say that they'd been in the military and had had a sight in here and a sight in there. So I knew that straight away that I was tapping into something. Uh, and obviously when uh, the first uh, article that I'd ever written was published in UFO magazine in January 2002, again, it wasn't a flood, but I started to receive letters, emails, phone calls from retired police officers generally uh, at first uh, who felt less pressured uh, because they got the pensions, they were, you know, they were in retirement, and they began to tell me their account stories for whatever you, you know, what, for want of a better expression. And I realised straight away that uh, that the database was going to work. Now, I started off uh, in January two thousand and two with I think six cases, historical cases found in books, UFO books involving around 10 police officers, British police officers. Well, let's take it forward through now to 2017. I have over 550 cases, going back to 1901, believe it or not, uh, involving over uh, 1,050 British police officers. So that's a pretty exponential increase from those few sightings that I had when I first started. So uh, an interesting thing happened, though, uh, media-wise, uh, in telling the story, is that when I created the database and it was launched publicly, and, of course, I was in a glossy magazine, uh, <clears throat> people began to pick up on that, the media did, and because I was still a serving police officer, uh, I started to attract media attention from regional newspapers, regional radio, uh, to national newspapers, national radio, national TV. Um, and that was in the first year. But the surprising thing that's occurred since is that even though the numbers have gone up so much, the more officers that came forward, the more records that I found through Freedom of Information press archives, etc. Actually, the media, certainly the national media, weren't interested. The less and less they were interested. Now, you would have thought that if you were, say, a golfer uh, and you were doing well and you were getting more attention, that you'd naturally get more media attention. But the more successful I was becoming in getting these cases, the less the media were reporting on it, which for me is no coincidence when I look at the way that the media, certainly in the US uh, and Europe, report on the subject. Uh, so I really do believe that there is a uh, media downplay of the best evidence. And when many of the police officer cases that I have on the database involve anywhere from 2 up to 24, I think, in one case alone, in many in different geographical positions. I don't think, uh, at national media level, they want somebody like me giving that kind of information out. How else can you explain 
why there's such a lack of interest despite your in a sense success at gathering more and more officers uh, so it's very strange but that's one of the uh, the trade-offs of this subject is that uh, if you do tell a very good story and present factual evidence uh, you generally don't get quoted very well you generally don't attract the media attention that it should get and that's just one of the things probably the most famous case in UK history is what happened at Rendlesham were you ever yeah. able to talk to anybody at Rendlesham or have anybody report to your website what they saw at Rendlesham oh, no I, I, uh, I've got to know uh, several of the key witnesses over the years um, and that came about um, in principally um, because I, if you remember early on in the first segment of the show I said that I'd served in the Royal Air Force and that for three of my years service I'd guarded nuclear weapons <clears throat> and I said that would become relevant if we talk about Rendlesham Forest well, why this becomes uh, relevant is all the witnesses, or the majority of the witnesses who were involved in Rendlesham Forest uh, were, in a sense, part of a uh, law enforcement stroke security uh, number of officers protecting nuclear weapons. It was a nuclear weapons base. Despite what several of the witnesses tried to downplay that it was a nuclear weapons base, several have confirmed it. Uh, and I know by the makeup of the amount of officers that were on shift that it was a nuclear base because it was it matched and mirrored uh, the two nuclear bases that I worked on, uh, one in in England and one in what was then West Germany. Uh, but where I had an interest was because I knew how the protection of these nuclear sites worked. I always suspected that there had to be several more witnesses um, who would never come forward because of mo most people would not have the knowledge that I had about the intimate working of a weapons storage area which is the actual cordoned off area, fenced off area where they contain the hot row and, and the bunkers containing tactical nuclear missiles that are attached to aircraft hence, uh, you know the, the, these are not huge weapons but tactical weapons that could be attached to fighter aircraft and uh, basically um, in a co kind of a coincidence in I think it was late 2007 uh, the American Hunters the UFO Hunters program with Bill Burns uh, contacted me and said look we want to do a, a program about police officer cases and you're the man to see kind of thing and they they arranged to fly over and interview me uh, but in the process of finding out when their schedule was etc for flying over uh, they eventually said oh we're coming on such and such a day and I said well you, you must not be flying over just to see me you must be covering other stories and they said yeah we're doing Rendlesham now I instinctively said well, I've got a big interest in Rendlesham because I used to work and protect nuclear weapons and I think there's many more witnesses. And I said, who uh, is uh, coming across or who, who are you going to be dealing with about Rendlesham in the UK? 
and uh, they said, oh, we're, we're flying over Colonel Holt, uh, Colonel Charles Holt, and uh, who was the, for those that are not aware, he was the deputy base commander um, during the time of these events in late December 1980. And I said, oh, well, I'd love to meet him because um, I... I think that there's going to be more witnesses and people are not going to be aware of this and uh, <clears throat> sure enough they said oh this is really interesting it's a new development so yeah we'll, we'll get you to come down and we'll introduce you kind of thing so that's what happened uh, in I think it was December 2007 uh, he flew over we met in the hotel we chatted that this was before filming took place we got on really well and I said you know very interested in the story because of my background and whatever and uh, he actually confirmed that there'd been many more witnesses who had been up in the who'd been walking around inside the weapon storage area when a ufo had stopped and hovered above the nuclear bunkers and he confirmed to me that a beam had been shot down he didn't see it directly he was out in the woods with a team but he saw uh, from a distance a UFO that looked to him from his geographical position that it looked as if it was heading in the direction of the weapon storage area so what he did was he changed the radio frequency on his radio to the weapon storage area tower radio uh, and heard the chatter in the tower saying there's beams being shone down from a UFO into the nuclear bunkers and he actually confirmed that on a small video uh, for me personally at the top of the weapon storage area while we were having a break in the filming. Uh, and that's up on the uh, linked page uh, details that I gave you earlier for the YouTube channel that we've got for the magazine. And it's on there. Uh, and it's a very telling because he said the guy in the tower had contacted him, had confirmed that beams had gone down into the nuclear weapon storage bunker and that many more witnesses walking around inside had had seen it too. Now, these witnesses have never, ever been identified, but they are out there. So if you're listening to this show and you want to talk, whether it be as a confidential source or publicly after all these years, by all means, I'd, I'd love you to contact me um, because you're very valuable witnesses because that's one aspect of many aspects of a very complex and fascinating series of events that occur over three successive nights, three successive shifts, basically. And there's lots of different incidents. Uh, but that is, in itself, in a remarkable account that he confirmed for me. And he started a, uh, a seven-year collaboration period with Colonel Holt. Um, and that collaboration was to write a film screenplay uh, that I would write and he would uh, collaborate factually with any information that I asked of him. And that process went on until I think around early 2015 when I decided to end that relationship um, because I found that he was making disparaging and unsubstantiated remarks about a fellow witness called Larry Warren and I thought that was unprofessional and he didn't produce any evidence at that time and so I said well I think that's wrong and therefore I've ended the, the seven year association and I in a sense wrote off seven years of a script 
um, because I thought it was wrong, unprofessional. But, but uh, in, in the meantime, I'd met um, Jim Penniston, John Burroughs. Uh, over the years, um, I met uh, John Burroughs, one of the original two witnesses on the first night with Jim Penniston. You see it, well, although their perceptions are different, Jim Penniston, who was with him on the first night, sees a triangular craft that he wrote about, wrote in his pocketbook, drew it, took photographs, photographs came out fogged, but he touched it, walked around it, he was in a small clearing on the first night, and he was with John Burroughs, John Burroughs didn't touch it, he was nearby, and his description of the craft is not a structured, uh, but certainly confirms that they'd followed an object through the trees, and in a clearing there was an object at or near the ground. So, it's a very complicated case, and uh, unfortunately is marred in recent years by what I can only call infighting of the witnesses, um, which is a shame. And I do have thoughts on as to the reason why that is. And what I al- always found was that when the case broke, the original whistleblower was a guy who Ehrman called Larry Warren. And his account did not rest easy with many of the other witnesses who were involved in other nights of activity. But he was the first. Now, what should have happened is that, in my opinion, the most senior officer, Colonel Holt, when he retired... Um, he should have got all the witnesses together and said, you're all part of a very unique event or series of events. You're all part of it. You've all got different perceptions. It's such a weird event. He'd seen UFOs himself on the third night, multiple UFOs. So he got caught up in something extremely profound. But he should have pulled them all together and said, you're my team. You're my uh, flock for want of a better expression and we're all a part of something weird and therefore we all work together but unfortunately that didn't occur and over a period of time it's allowed for want of a better expression different factions to begin and Colonel Holt who I got on really well with for several years and uh, in our collaboration period um over time, I felt that he wasn't being fully uh, frank with me, uh, which he said he was, but I got the impression, and I was an advanced interviewer of suspects and witnesses. Over time, I thought he was holding back on stuff. And he'd hinted at stuff, but when I asked the questions, he wouldn't really say. So, again, by the time I ended the uh, association in 2015, I got to the point where I could see that several of the other witnesses um, had had said of Holt that he he had stirred and muddied the waters at times and seemed to play people. And over time, I began to see that he had done so. Again, as the senior officer, the most senior officer involved to see UFOs, I didn't think that that was the way to bring people together or to... Uh, or, to, or, to, or to effectively move the case forward. So uh, you, you've ended up with a situation where, in a sense, there are several different factions. Um, 
and it's frustrating, but never take it away from the. If you strip all the personalities involved, the Rendlesham Forest case is arguably one of the best cases in the world. Uh, it's, it's as good as Roswell in many ways because if you think about it, how many times do you have UFO events that occur over three successive nights involving anywhere from 20 to 50 uh, military police officers in various capacities who see various different things. That's not including the perhaps 10 to 20 civilians who lived at or near the base who saw things uh, on the periphery of the base because they lived close to the runways and things like that and the perimeter fences. So you've got this event that, that is ongoing over three nights. Now, I can also say that over the years, various people have given some information uh, to me and and, uh, uh, and the magazine. Uh, but I also, uh, and I've never really talked about this much, is that on one occasion, and it was during that collaborative period with Colonel Holt, um, I was sent some very detailed information in a series of emails, uh, I think maybe seven to ten emails, from someone who claimed to be, a, I think, a colonel uh, in the US, and uh, who appeared to have very intimate knowledge of radar. Uh, it does. I'm not a radar expert, but it seemed very, very plausible and who confirmed that there was these series of events. But what I suspected over the series of these emails was when I came back to him and said, oh, that's all very good, it's very interesting, but I need you to now prove to me who you say you are. Well, as soon as I said that, this guy disappeared, never to be traced or heard of again. Uh, now, was it a hoax? It may well have been a test by somebody to try to see whether I just put out disinformation. I never put the information out, so that didn't work if it was that disinformation exercise. But I'd have to say that the information that he gave had a, whilst I'm not an expert on radar, had a, a ring of truth to my mind that he certainly knew a lot more. And whoever this person was, almost certainly the wrong name, uh, it, it did seem plausible, but I've never released the information because the guy never came forward and corroborated who he was, and therefore you have got to err on the side of caution and you don't become involved in a, what may have been a, a disinformation exercise to try to trap me. Um, so it never got published, but it had the, uh, the echo to me that uh, some of it was true. Let me ask you this, because there's a lot of people out there who have heard of the Rendlesham case, because it is probably the next famous next to Roswell. But a lot of people out there do not know what happened. So I was wondering if you could take a couple of minutes to explain what happened over those three nights. <laughs> a couple of minutes. Um, uh, right. Uh, I'll do the best that I can. Essentially, what you've got to think of is... Uh, three successive nights effectively involving three sets of different shifts and personnel. On the first night, essentially, lights were seen outside uh, approximately 300 metres away from the 
the fence line uh, of what was called the East Gate, one of the perimeters that was guarded by <coughs> U.S. Air Force police officers. And they see strange lights above the trees about 300 meters away. And uh, they think or suspect that maybe a, a plane or a helicopter is in distress. Uh, and they seek permission to go off base, thinking there might be a plane going down. They might need to give assistance. So essentially that's what happens. And three people leave the base. Uh, John Burroughs, uh, Jim Penniston, who was the sergeant, and the, the driver. Uh, and they basically go off the base uh, and they start to experience, uh, they park up because they can't go any further into the forest, so they go on foot. Their radios start to break up, so they deploy uh, one person uh, as a radio relay. What, what I mean by that is that you can bounce a radio signal from somebody's station there and it can like act as a transmitter. So they kept one guy back, a guy called Ed Kabanzak, he became the uh, the relay, and two of them went on foot deeper into the forest, and eventually, in a clearing, a small clearing, they see a small object, approximately three metres by three metres in size, perhaps two metres in height. Jim Penniston uh, walks forward, uh, walks around it, touches it, it says it's glass-like, he draws it, he photographs it, but the photographs later come out fogged. But he walks around it for perhaps 30, 45 minutes. Uh, and then the object lifts and then shoots off uh, up into the sky. Now, as I said earlier, John Burroughs, who was with him, his drawing of the craft of the object is, is not as clear, as structured as Jim Penniston's, but that's people's different perceptions but they both in a sense describe following an object through the trees um, and then coming to a clearing and there is something there so that's the corroboration now essentially that's the first night uh, Colonel Holt becomes aware of uh, this incident as he comes on onto the morning of the uh, boxing day 26th so the first night is essentially from midnight into the 26th, or 25th into the 26th. Holt uh, comes on, Colonel Holt comes on, he was then de Deputy Base Commander, and he was a Lieutenant Colonel at the time of the incident. He comes on, and there's a bit of a joke about, has anything happened overnight? Yes, have you seen a flying source, that kind of banter, and he says, is it in the log? Or as he would say, the blotter? which was like the daily log of every occurrence on the base for that police section. And it wasn't, so he said, we'll put it in there. So he first becomes aware on the early morning of the 26th. Essentially, what happens is on the second night, and was for many years not really well known at all, and it involved the shift commander of the next rotating shift. So the next night, second night, 20. Uh, 6th into the 27th of December and basically what happens is it involves the shift commander who was a, uh, a female officer called Lieutenant Bonnie Tamplin and she happened to be on mobile patrol uh, off the base, nearby to the base when there was a report 
from another one of the uh, police staff, a lady called, uh, an airwoman called Laurie Bowen, who again saw what she described was a fiery ball of light dropping into the forest. She reported it's a different shift come on so it's different staff and she reported it and basically because lieutenant tamplin was already on mobile she said i'll respond to that now here we get a bit um into uh, uh, not so much detail in the sense that something profoundly happens that frightens her because the next thing is she's screaming over the radio, help me, help me, help me, terrified screaming. And another officer, a sergeant, Bobby Ball, is dispatched on mobile to try to find her, finds her, she's hysterical. She's so frightened, that, well, so hysterical that she has to be relieved from duty. Now, several, in terms of corroboration, several of the uh, police staff, um, who were on shift heard the radio of her screams and have come forward and confirmed that and gone public. So they corroborate that something profoundly frightening occurred. Now, we do not have any direct testimony from Lieutenant Molly Tamplin because she's never gone on the record and I don't think anybody knows where she is or can find her now. And basically, the story second-hand story, which is almost certainly going to come from Bobby Ball, uh, Sergeant Ball, was that apparently as she drove into the forest, uh, her windows were down, and uh, basically a small object described as the size of, say, a tennis ball, uh, blue, I think a blue tennis ball, coloured light-sized ball, uh, came floating into the open driver's window stopped in front of her which <laughs> would probably freak most people out freaked her out clearly and then the object departed through the passenger front window and away that's apparently the story but we haven't got that first hand but we do have the corroboration from the uh, several other shift members hearing her screaming over the radio so that becomes corroborative testimony to something profoundly frightening happening to her. Um, but it's the most least known of the three nights of activity. Then another shift comes on onto the third night, which is now the 27th going into the 28th. There is this story that the UFO is seen again. And uh, basically one of the uh, uh, people is dispatched to tell her, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Holt, who is at a Christmas function. This is the third night. And basically, that is Lieutenant Bruce England. Uh, and basically, he goes into the Christmas function as a word with Colonel Holt and says, uh, the UFO's back. Or, it's back. And Colonel Holt says, what's back? The UFO's back. So he then gets dispatched by Colonel Conrad, who was the base commander, uh, who tells him, go out there and effectively debunk, get rid of this, because it's ridiculous. So Holt uh, makes several phone calls and says, I need to get changed. I'm going home to his quarter to get changed. Uh, I'll meet up at a certain time, and I want these people with me to form 
my forward group. And essentially that's what happened. He goes, gets changed, blah, blah, blah. And essentially he assembles a small team, including himself, five people, which is uh, essentially three sergeants, uh, Lieutenant Bruce England and uh, Deputy Base Commander, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Hull. So they form this forward team. Now, because of the activity reported, it would seem that there is a heightened state of activity and many people have reported that there was a... uh, Many vehicles were, in a sense, driven to an area in the woods um, referred to as probably a clearing area where there are many police vehicles there. And um, with that, perhaps anywhere, depends on who you talk to, anywhere from 20 to 40 um, personnel ready to be deployed into the forest. Holt gets there with his team and basically says, I want everybody keeping back. He then goes off into the forest. Now, by which time, because he's had to get changed, uh, assemble the team, uh, the UFO that was originally seen earlier in the evening has disappeared. But what he says, well, I'm, I'm changed now. We've got all the equipment. Uh, take me to the, the landing site from two nights earlier. Because what I didn't say earlier is that uh, after that first night of activity, um, Jim Penniston, went back, who was one of the original witnesses who walked around it, touched it, put it in his pocketbook, etc. He went back within hours and found in daylight that there were three uh, indentations in the ground in an equilateral triangle. Uh, each of the depressions were of the same size and to the same depression. Now, uh, Holt had never been to the landing site. Uh, so when he gets involved on the third night and he's already got changed into his you know, his uniform, combat gear as it were, he, he says, well, we're out here, we're all assembled, take me to the, uh, the landing site. Now, that has to be Bruce England because nobody else had been to the landing site as far as we're aware uh, of his team, so it's almost certainly Bruce England had been to that landing site and he took them to the landing site. And there they then started to do a series of, of uh, measurements, uh, checking the local, kind of a forensic examination of a scene. Uh, now, they took with them a Geiger counter that had been calibrated, so it was, it was working properly. And what they found was that when the Geiger counter was put in each of the three indentations, uh, there was a certain spiking on the readout uh, of background radiation. And it only occurred in the three indentations and in a slight blast area in the centre of the triangle. If you can imagine three, an equilateral triangle, and you think centre point, was a slight increase in, uh, in, in background radiation there. Uh, later on, through investigation it was confirmed that background radiation peaked at around seven to eight times higher than background radiation in each of the indentations. So that's good physical evidence that something strange had happened. They also had uh, a night scope with them uh, which could pick up latent heat, uh, like a night vision, um, and uh, they uh, saw that on the trees uh, in this clearing area 
that several branches have been broken off, uh, consistent with either an object punching its way down to the ground or punching its way out as it took off. And uh, that was consistent. So there were marks on, on the trees in and around this small area of clearing. So again, physical evidence to say that something had dropped from the sky to the ground, uh, leaving physical evidence. So that's important. Now, as they're at this landing site on the third night, doing the measurements, suddenly somebody says of his group, what's that over there? And essentially they see this, what they describe, or what Holt describes as a, uh, a red winking light uh, with a dark, black center light and he described it as like an eye winking at you and what you've got to understand is that they were in a forest of Corsican pines and for those of you who aren't aware what a Corsican pine looks like if you can imagine most people have walked through a, a kind of like pine tree forest and they're in rows well what is more interesting about the Corsican pines is that their branches don't start until about seven or eight feet off the ground so you have the stump and you can have this uh, view of rows of trees and you are looking underneath the canopy because the branches don't start to lie up so this is what's significant about this because what they say is that this red winking object was maneuvering through the trees under the canopy of the forest as a result, they then began to leave the landing site from two days earlier and they begin to follow, as a group, this red winking light through the trees. It's under the canopy of the trees. Skeptics will try to tell you a very different story, but this is the key point. Corsican pines, branches, and so you can see under the canopy. And they follow this object and it was moving up, down, left, right, moving through and as they followed it through the trees they said it looked like it was had some kind of uh, molten metal dripping off the, the edges of it uh, but nothing was ever found on the ground now eventually they follow this uh, red winking object under the canopy of the trees and uh, until they emerge at the edge of an open field what's referred to as the farmer's field and as they reach the edge of this open field, they can see, uh, in a sense, diagonally across, uh, the, on the opposite side of this open field, kind of grassed or seeded field, but no trees, there was a farmhouse. And I stood with Holt many years later, during the course of our collaboration, and I said, where was what you saw? Where was it? where was the object and he basically said if you look at the farmhouse when we came out of the forest and we were stood at the edge of the forest we saw this object for the first time clearly and he said it's this red winking object uh, with a dark center molten metal appearing to drip off it and it was about the size of a car and it was to the left of the farmhouse from our position and such was its brightness that it was casting a glow into the windows of the farmhouse almost to the point where it looked like the farmhouse was on fire such as the brightness involved and this is where they get this first clear look at it 
Now, as they look at the object, the, the object suddenly, and this is Holt's words, uh, as described on an audio tape, he made it, he, he carried as as a as standard practice. He carried a small dictaphone with him uh, for meetings, and he would just make intermittent uh, bookmarks, as it were, reminders to do this, that, and the other. But he took it with him on this night, so we have a a very rare, uh, if you think of UFO experiences, uh, we have a live recording of various segments of some of the incidents over what it turns out to be about a four and a half hour period out in the forest. So, they're at the edge of the forest, they see this field and they see the object hovering just off the ground, perhaps four feet, five feet off the ground, about the size of a car to the left of the farmhouse. And then a strange thing happens, that they see this uh, dark object, this red object, suddenly divides silently into five white objects. Now, again, if we talk of terrestrial objects and try to imagine what can do this, I'm pretty certain none of us can find one that will match this. So what single object can then suddenly divide into five white objects that then disappear one by one in front of their eyes, just disappear into nothing? Pretty weird. Then they realise that there are other objects in the sky, uh, to the north and to the south. And so they basically crossed the farmer's field to the other side where the farmhouse was to try to get to move towards these lights that they could see left and right as it were, north and south. And it's at one point during this crossing the field that they come to a stream and a rise. They have to cross this stream and they go on a slight uh, up, up incline into a what's called the second farmer's field. And now a significant event here occurs here that the media generally report on uh, because they like to talk about lighthouses being the excuse for what the people saw. But you, this will demonstrate how ludicrous that story is, is that basically having gone across the stream into this raised second slightly higher farmer's field, they, one of the objects that they're looking in the sky, which is, and all these objects were making grid-like patterns, like right-angle turns and like almost looked like they were searching a grid, almost maybe looking for something. Well, one of these objects then approaches at high speed Holt's team of five and basically stops above their heads at about 1,000 to 2,000 feet and then projects down something that we would probably describe as a laser beam, perhaps uh, 30 centimetres or, or one foot wide, 12 inches wide, down at their feet, uh, and Holt openly says, he says, uh, is this a threat, or is this a form of communication? They didn't know, they are all in awe. And this beam of light is near to them, uh, within feet of the small group, and it stays there for about 20, 30 seconds, and then it blinks off, and then the object goes away off into the distance, and then they notice that another object is moving towards the base, and this is the one that I remarked upon earlier, which is the one that appeared to be over the weapon storage area or in the vicinity of, but they couldn't see it for themselves because of the terrain in between, 
So that's when Holt changed. He had access to three radio frequencies, and he changed frequency to the weapon storage area and heard the guy in the tower saying beams have been shone down into the weapon storage area. Now, all of that is happening uh, is one account. Essentially, there are two other elements that we now know uh, and I believe do occur. Um, Holt would argue against both, that I'm going to say. But the second one is that there was this account called Capel Green, an area of the same farmer's field, believe it or not. It's the same area. But the farmer's field, I don't know the geographical layout, but if you see it, it's, it's actually a very relatively speaking, a, a small area of perhaps quarter of a mile, half a mile wide. Uh, so that it's not a huge geographical area. But essentially, Larry Warren, young airman, he says he's deployed to an area that's called Careful Green with lots of the airmen, police officers, and he's told to form um, a circle of airmen around a strange yellow mist that's like uh, just a foot, two feet off the ground, that's hugging the ground in a small area. And then suddenly says, somebody shouts, it's coming. And he looks up and he sees a small red light flying in towards the yellow mist, stops over the yellow mist. And then his next recollection is that there's an explosion of light, so much brightness that he later has to have medical attention to his eyes. Uh, but when his eyes refocus, there is where the mist had been, there is suddenly this translucent craft of some description. So something had materialised uh, where the yellow mist had been. Now, at this point, there is some confusion, but at, at some point he will say that he saw what he can only describe as three childlike entities that emerge from the craft in the same way as a bubble separating, it's like slipping off the fabric of this translucent craft. Very strange how he describes it, childlike, uh, but there's something in these bubbles of light. And this is being corroborated uh, by one of Holt's team, Sergeant Adrian Bustinza, much to the annoyance of Holt, uh, who doesn't like speaking about Adrian Bustinza, but Adrian Bustinza corroborates and says that Larry Warren was there. Holt will say Larry Warren wasn't there. That's where we get into the politics, but I'm pretty happy now, uh, certainly because of Adrian Bustinza and another fellow airman called Steve Longero, they see Larry Warren there. So I'm pretty certain that this careful green incident does occur. And it's happening in a different part of the farmer's field, forest, however you want to describe it. But it's relatively speaking at the same time frame, within this hours the whole is out. So you've got that, which is a far more controversial account. And then the last part, that again is something that one of the witnesses, John Burroughs, has been saying for a long time. He said that he joined up with uh, Adrian Bustinza, who I've just mentioned, uh, and 
actually got ahead of Holt's team. Holt will say that never happened. John Burroughs is adamant that it did and has been corroborated by Sergeant Adrian Bustinza uh, and basically said he got ahead of the light. Now, as they move ahead of Holt's team, it seems that Adrian Bustinza slips, falls to the ground, and as he slips and falls to the ground, he looks forward to see John Burroughs, one of the witnesses from the first night, being engulfed into a brilliant light and John will say that he ended up inside something but it's all kind of very weird as you would expect this isn't I think one of the things that what you're dealing with is something profoundly strange so we we, I think far too many people get lost in trying to put the details into very rigid boxes I think when we're talking about UFOs, it's such a weird, profound experience, especially if it's close encounter like theirs was, that we should never do that because everybody's perceptions will be slightly different and what may be happening to one might not be perceived by somebody else. So essentially, we shouldn't try to put things into our rigid framework of it's that account, it's that account, uh, and just accept that it's just part of something weird. We're talking about something really weird. And so, basically, that's uh, the third part of the third night. Uh, but Colonel Holt will say that that didn't happen. John Burroughs is absolutely adamant that it did, and uh, has been corroborated by Adrian Bustins that he did get forward in this incident uh, of John being engulfed in the light. So you have this kind of... You can see where there's this infighting, uh, and it may well be that there are reasons why Holt doesn't want to say anything, but certainly it's not as clear and transparent as it should be. Uh, I think a lot of people, if you were to summarise the case, will say that nowadays it's it's maybe a poison chalice because of all the infighting that's occurred over the years. Totally unnecessary, didn't need to happen, could have been dealt with much better. I think there are more witnesses ready to come forward should there ever be a change in the disclosure process where people weren't going to be ridiculed. John Burroughs has told me personally that there are many other witnesses who have spoken to him privately who would come forward if there were congressional hearings and it was done properly and they weren't going to be ridiculed or risk their careers, etc. So we know that that's the case. So what you can see is in this, you can't describe it in two minutes properly as you asked me to do, but I know you was only being flippant there. But realistically, in what, 10, 15 minutes, you have the basis there of a series of events that we generally don't get. Most times we have a we can have a major sighting, but it will be a one-off sighting on one night, sometimes occasionally with the aftermath of something being seen. But nothing where we've had three successive nights of incidents uh, uh, with as much things going on, and we're talking about nuclear weapons. So this is a... Uh, 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 often overlooked, but I've always said that the, uh, the the case really is summed up. What a lot of people don't realise is the the historical context in which the sighting takes place, and that was very briefly that at the time of December, late December, 
1980, there were two world events that were going on that were threatening to destabilize the world. One, the American hostage crisis uh, in the Middle East, and two, uh, the rise of the uh, Polish solidarity movement under Lech Walesa, uh, the shipyard workers, and for a lot of people don't realize that at that time, uh, Poland was still under the Soviet Union um, blanket, for want of a better curtain, uh, as you would say, part of the, uh, the Soviet Iron Curtain. And it looked like hundreds of thousands of troops were massing on the borders of Poland, ready to put down this. In on, on that note, I'm going to have to get you to hold on because we got to go to a commercial break here. Gary Heselton is our guest. What an amazing, amazing man filled with information. Wow. Powerful hour. Why well, I would say one of the most powerful we've heard on this show in a long, long time. Proofos. You could Google it. P-R-U-F-O-S. That's his website. We'll be right back with more Space Out Radio right after this. Final commercial break coming up right now. We'll see you on the other side. The SOR Sightlines is a place for you to find answers to your strange experiences. Hi there, this is Mike Schmidt. If you have had an encounter with ghosts, UFOs, Bigfoot, ETs, or anything else that doesn't make sense, head to spacedoutradio.com and file a Sightlines report. All information you give is 100% confidential, and I will personally help you find the answers you need. SOR Sightlines, your answers are a click away. Have you got your Cosmic Passport? If you need one, tune in to Cosmic Passport on Spaced Out Weekend. This is Elizabeth Anglin, ET experiencer, spirit medium, and host of Cosmic Passport. Each weekend, I'll be bringing you interviews and support from other paranormal experiencers and the best in intuitive spiritual guidance from across the globe. It's all happening starting at 9 p.m. Pacific Time, midnight Eastern, on spacedoutradio.com. Hi there. I'm Butch Witkowski, lead investigator with you 4 cop On the final Monday of every month, you can listen to me and host Dave Scott on Spaced Out Radio's Strange Days. We're going to get to the heart of the matter when it comes to what's happening out there. People are seeing and experiencing things from ET contact to Bigfoot, and I want to hear about it. Your experiences are what we investigators need to help solve these unknown mysteries. So tune in at spacedoutradio.com to the final Monday of every month from Butch Wachowski's Strange Days. Visit purpleplates.com today. For over 40 years, the Purple Energy Plates have been delivering amazing results for their many customers. Inspired by the great genius Nikola Tesla, the harmony, healing, and energetic effects of the plates have proven over and over to be beneficial and often miraculous to thousands of customers. With their money-back guarantee and the many benefits, how can you afford not to get one? Check their site for daily specials and choose from their many energy products. You won't be sorry. Visit them today at purpleplates.com for mind, body, and spirit, and expect a miracle. This is your medium, Joanna, from Spaced Out Weekend, Two Mediums and a Large. I would love it if you would come and join us with host James Tyson every other Sunday on Spaced Out Weekend. Together, we will take your calls and your questions live. Our goal is to provide you with a positive outlook on deep questions that you may have. Questions regarding love, relationships, money, or whatever else is on your mind. Come and check us out at spacedoutradio.com. 
This is Eric Markham, news editor for the Spaced Out Radio's The Encounter Online. We have put together a great team of writers and journalists from all over the world to bring you top quality paranormal stories, from alien encounters to the latest conspiracies. You won't find any of that fake news here. True stories and top-notch reporting as we look to bring these experiences to the mainstream. The Encounter online only at spacedoutradio.com. Patrolling the Pacific Northwest, we are always on the lookout for the strange and unassuming stories that real people are experiencing. Hi, I'm Vincent Zunza from Pacific North Weird. Me and Alexandra Sullivan have teamed to bring to you those odd stories that never seem to make it into the mainstream. Stories so weird that we'll leave you scratching your head wondering, is this real? It's as real as it gets with Pacific North Weird. You can watch our videos right here at spacedoutradio.com. Become more intimate and interactive with Spaced Out Radio. Join our Space Travelers Club with your new membership. For $5 a month, we'll provide you with special access to the website, monthly prize draws from books to psychic readings, along with monthly newsletter, private interviews, and more. Sign up today to be part of Spaced Out Radio's experience. Looking for a place to advertise at a very reasonable cost? Look no further than Spaced Out Radio. SpacedOutRadio.com has an advertising tab that you can click to check out our daily, weekly, and monthly packages to play on the radio or our website, including social media. From commercial spots to banners, we have it all. Check out our competitive pricing today. Don't have time to listen to Spaced Out Radio Live? Wherever you are, the car, the office, the shower, or even if you're traveling, we're right here for you. Each Spaced Out Radio show can be found on iTunes, TuneIn, and on our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. It's the perfect way for you to catch up on our shows. For more information, just head over to our website, spacedoutradio.com, and tune in to us today. You hear footsteps in the empty room above you. A rocking chair begins rocking by itself. Don't be afraid of the things that go bump in the night. Reach for Spirit Story Box. The iPhone app the Huffington Post UK called the only ghost hunting app you will ever need. Spirit Story Box. The spirits are telling their stories. Are you listening? Strange creatures lurking in the night, the sounds of wood knocking in the forest, odd happenings right out of a fictional world. These are the reports I love. Hi there, this is author Ronald Murphy, and I would love it if you join me and Spaced Out Radio host Dave Scott the second Wednesday of every month on our journey into the unknown land of cryptozoology at spacedoutradio.com. From Mothman to Frogman and everything in between, hey, they don't call me the crypto guru for nothing. Did you know that Spaced Out Radio runs seven days a week? Hi, it's James Tyson from Spaced Out Weekend. Every Saturday and Sunday night, starting at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, you can join me and my guests for some great chatter about what's going on out in the universe or even in that dark part of the basement you really don't want to go back into. Well, let's find the answers to your experiences together. So come on up to Uncle Jimbo's cabin on the weekend. For more information, look us up at spacedoutradio.com. The views and opinions expressed by tonight's guest and topic of discussion do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of Spaced Out Radio, Spaced Out Weekend, 
Spaced Out Radio Limited, its hosts, syndicated carriers, or anyone associated with this broadcast. You're listening to Spaced Out Radio with Dave Scott. Follow Dave on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio and hashtag Spaced Out Radio and on Facebook Spaced Out Radio Show. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to the final hour of Space Out Radio tonight. A very, very quick two hours of this program. We got one hour more with Gary Heseltine coming up right after this. Tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern time, Brett Collins Shepard is going to join us. He works with Ken Johnson. We're going to talk more of NASA, UFOs, cover ups, a little bit of conspiracy in the UFO field tomorrow night at SpacedOutRadio.com. We want to welcome in our terrestrial radio stations tonight, WQEE 99 Rock the Key down in Noonan, Georgia, and 107.7 FM in New Orleans, the United Public Radio Network, also heard in over 160 countries around the world. Good to have you with us tonight. We're also live on Revolution Radio in Las Vegas on Renegade Radio, and if you're listening in on Revolution Radio, Remember, the Double R Machine is a donation station financed by you, the valued listener. Head on over to freedomslips.com and donate today. Bill Cardwell has set the password for tonight in the SOR Space Travelers Club. Paganophobia. Paganophobia is your password. Make sure you use it wisely, Space Travelers, because Bill sets a password each and every night right here on the Mighty SOR. If you want to follow us on social media, you can do so on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio. Use the hashtag Spaced Out Radio to connect with me live during the show as well. You can give our Facebook page a like, Spaced Out Radio Show. Tune us in on TuneIn. Download this show on others on iTunes. We're also on RadioGuide.fm, TalkStream Live, and on Stitcher. Our website, once again, is SpacedOutRadio.com, where we have a plethora of features for you including joining the SOR Space Travelers Club for 5 bucks a month, reading up on the encounter online, our journalism side, and if you head on over to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com. You can also become a Space Out Radio patron for as low as $1 a month. Gary Heseltine is our guest once again tonight. He's going the distance all the way from way early in the morning in the United Kingdom, Gary, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Now, you have a an offer for all of our listeners, because i got to tell you, Gary, it's only ever happened once, maybe twice on this show, where I have literally seen the four chat rooms and Twitter go absolutely silent during a guest. And I actually put up in a couple of rooms... It's like crickets in here. I typed in, it's like crickets in here. And basically got told to shut up because they're listening. <laughs> I, have, well, I, guess that's, I guess that's a compliment. Absolutely. I, I do not recall the last time we had a guest who actually had our audience this enthralled where they've absolutely stopped chatting. So kudos to you, my friend. For doing that that that's a that's a brand new record right here on spaced out radio i'm flattered i'm flattered 
All right, my friend, you wanted to continue on with Rendlesham and finish that story. Yeah, just to sum up, really, that a lot of people don't realize the historical context. As I said just before the uh, top of the hour, that the the context is that two major world crises and why do UFOs suddenly turn up at Rendlesham or the bases of Bentwaters and Woodbridge? And my take on this, I've always thought that the reason why is because I suspect that the all the uh, the nuclear weapons. It was a nuclear weapons base, but I suspect there were far more nuclear weapons in the Bentwaters storage area than there should have been. So, at a time of world crisis, UFOs turn up. I think akin to a nuclear inspection, and I think that's genuinely what it's all about. And to add to that, early on when I first met Holt, Holt had said to me privately. There were more nuclear weapons there than anywhere else in Europe. Now, that says to me that uh, that probably hinted at a mass, massive cache of nuclear weapons in the Bentwater storage area that shouldn't have been there. Yes, it was a nuclear base, but there were far more, and it probably broke all the armament agreements between the UK and the States. I don't know that for certain, but that's the implication of that comment. Now, here's... Um, said that that never happened but it did and it was also said again when I met up with him for the course of some filming in 2010 uh, and my wife and I were walking through Rendlesham Forest taking him back retracing his path on that fateful night and he said it in front of my wife as well and she remembered it because she was shocked uh, that he would come out with a comment like that now, I've said this, and I, I went public with it uh, in 2016, uh, because I felt that he was never going to admit this, but it needs to be out there, because we do have to move forward uh, with the case. And this is a factor, a motive as to why UFOs suddenly turn up in Suffolk and come to look at that base. And for me, the logical thing is, at a time of world crisis, this was a nuclear inspection. Those weapons that shouldn't have been there potentially could be de have a destabilizing effect on the world, if you think of the nuclear Armageddon point of view. And one of the reasons why I say that is, if we think about it logically, people say, well, yeah, well, why would UFOs travel over the vast distances just to come and look at it? Why are they bothered about nuclear weapons? Well, one of the logical things for me is that we know less about the, uh, the our oceans than we do about the moon and Mars. We know only 1% of our oceans. And what a lot of people don't realize that with the UFO phenomena is that UFOs historically have been seen going in and out of large bodies of water all over the world. Lots of military sightings have seen by ships objects emerging from the water and going up into the sky and then plunging into the water. Flying saucers, for want of a better expression. Now, that says to me, if we only know 1% of the oceans, and we know more about the surface of the Mars and the Moon, then that says to me that we don't know what's in the 99%. Now, that strikes me that probably in our deepest trenches, we may well have uh, a base there 
uh, and there are various bases allegedly all over the world. So, uh, I think uh, off Puerto Rico is one mentioned regularly. But it doesn't matter. But the point is, we only know 1%. So in that 99% unknown, it seems to me perfectly plausible when UFOs are seen coming in and out of large bodies of water that there may well be a base there. And who knows that these species, whatever, alien race, has been down there maybe for a long, long time and it's their habitat too. So this is why I think that there is a strong correlation to seeing this planet not destroy itself with nuclear weapons. And if you think about it, right from the uh, 40s onwards, when we started to uh, research and deploy nuclear energy, uh, nuclear weapons, and start proceeding into developing nuclear weapons, UFOs have been seen to turn up. And And if I could just recommend one documentary that you ever see on UFOs, uh, for me, the most important documentary ever made on the subject. It was was released last year, and it's called UFOs and Nukes uh, by Robert Hastings. And it's uh, uh, the documentary of the book of the same name by the same author. And it basically tells of this link to UFO sightings and nuclear weapons as seen through the eyes of many, many military officials uh, senior officers who've gone on record collectively for the first time and it's an incredibly powerful documentary and I would say if you only ever watch one documentary in your lifetime on UFOs watch that I'd even go so far as to say that it should be shown in every high school as part of the history uh, of, of, of the world because this is a definite correlation between uh, nuclear weapons, nuclear facilities, nuclear power plants, and UFOs being seen. And as we know well from the likes of Captain Robert Salas, he was uh, uh, one of the uh, captain in a nuclear missile silo in, I think, 1967, uh, that his 10-minute missiles were shut down by a UFO hovering topside. Now, what technologies can just switch off our nuclear weapons and yet people still say it's a jokey subject it's not on the 6 o'clock news never made the 6 o'clock news you've got to ask the question why doesn't it make the 6 o'clock news and there's a very logical answer is because people in authority do not want the public to know the best evidence and people say to me as a former police officer what's your take on evidence and I say well I know what evidence is, what would stand up in a court of law. And if a guy in a nuclear bunker who's got one of the keys to turn dual key system to launch uh, nuclear weapons, if his testimony is not acceptable when he's responsible for our nuclear launch capability, then there is something seriously wrong with the way we look at what evidence is. Because that testimony, in any other regard, would be accepted as read without a shadow of doubt but not when it comes to UFOs and it all goes back to this jokey thing from the 50s and the Robertson panel that really turned the screw and said that we're going to debunk this subject, strip this aura of flying saucers and work with the media to downplay it so anybody 
in your audience under the age of 66 has lived in an era of debunking, 64, uh, has lived in an era of debunking. So I would imagine that's probably 70, 80% of your audience. And so all those years have been in a deliberate debunking phase, certainly in America and in Europe, and it still forms the basis of our media now. And it's very powerful, and it's very difficult to break. But that's the context in which Rendlesham Forest is. And so for me, there's a, still a hell of a lot more to come out. I don't think we'll ever get the 100% uh, of fact. We're probably at 65 70%. We may get to 80 if we're lucky in due course. Uh, but even so, with the 70%, and even if you take all the personalities out of the equation on what we know that factually occurred, that can be corroborated with multiple witnesses. We are looking at an incredible event and uh, one that places it certainly in the top five in the, probably the history of the subject. Do you think that this will ever come out? There's still questions 70 years later if Roswell and the real story will be let go. And I realize that's part of a disclosure-type movement, but is there still a lot of locked doors on this subject over in Great Britain? Oh, absolutely. There's no difference between Great Britain and the United States in its attitude. Don't forget that because of our historical special relationship, uh, we pretty much do whatever America says we will do. Uh, now, that's not good because America is the most secretive government in the world on UFOs and historically... Britain has followed suit, and so we're one of the most secretive governments in the world. I mean, with regards to the Rendlesham Forest case, they've had to be kicked and screamed. You know, they've lied. The Ministry of Defence have lied, uh, tried to hide, said we didn't have documents when documents are out. They're still doing it. Um, uh, John Burroughs, one of the key witnesses from the first night and the third night, uh, he was told that uh, about some documents that, uh, should have been released that hadn't during the British so-called release of papers uh, over a three-year period. And then John Burroughs said, was told, I think accidentally, that there were these other papers. Well, first of all, they said that, oh, yeah, yeah, we've, we've disclosed everything. That's it, that's all. And then John gets told about these and he mentions it. Oh, well, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, we'll release them uh, next year. And then another year's gone by. Oh, they're set for release this year. Whether they do or not, I don't know. I don't think they're going to be the smoking gun, but the point is that everything you're getting out of the British Ministry of Defence is you've literally got to pull teeth. Uh, they're not being cooperative. Uh, and believe it or not, despite everything that I've just described with regards to the Rendlesham case, the Ministry of Defence, uh, straight away, within days of being notified about the incident, within days said there was nothing of defence significance that had occurred at or near those bases in December 1980. Well, it's just took me 20 minutes to describe in brief detail the machinations of the three nights. And there they're saying nothing's occurred of defence significance. Absolutely ridiculous. It's a lie from the off. But that's the way 
it's always been played in the Ministry of Defence. Uh, they've often lied and said they haven't got documents, and then later on they've emerged through freedom of information or something else, and then, oh, yeah, yeah, we do have a copy of that and whatever. So that's the kind of approach that it's been in, in, in the UK, and I think it's pretty much the same in the States. Um, the wider question of disclosure, I personally have always said that I don't think anybody in ufology is powerful enough as a body of researchers or individually to make a massive breakthrough. Uh, and I say that without disrespect to any of the great researchers who are doing a great job, but you've got to understand that essentially it's a done deal that it's not going to come out through the media until such time as that there is a decision taken probably at a Bilderberger level that says, yeah, we're ready to disclose, and it gets out. Because essentially you've only got, I think, five or six worldwide media uh, multinational companies that control worldwide media, uh, certainly in the West, as it were. Now, if all those six worldwide media companies have got an anti-UFO disclosure policy, you ain't going to make a breakthrough because you won't get the airtime and it'll be trivialised when it does get any airtime. And that's exactly what's happened for the last 60 years. However, that said, short of a UFO suddenly emerging over the Olympics or something like that, which is entirely possible, and these days with people, everybody carrying a mobile phone and the quality of the mobile phone cameras getting so much better, now they're really fantastic HD quality cameras. If that event of a UFO being seen over the Olympics during the athletics, as it were, then how would you not control the 100,000 people who've got mobile phones? You couldn't control it and they'd get great footage. But short of that demonstration by a UFO that becomes a game changer, I do actually believe that we are on course for a disclosure, but not in the accepted sense of UFO researchers getting that breakthrough. I think technology is moving at such a pace now that it's inevitable that somebody sooner or later is going to get genuine footage that is incontrovertible, that there will be multiple witnesses, multiple camera angles, and that it's not hoax, it's not CGI, etc., etc., that is a, a, a very real prospect. And I think the other thing as well is that, for me, the technology means that, in a sense, if you, if, you, if you look at the way this subject of life in space, the whole subject of is there life out there, well, 15 years ago, astronomers and mainstream science would have probably said, in the vastness of space, they're maybe life 10 years ago probably life but now what they're actually saying now is almost certainly life is teeming out there and now the only problem for astronomers is the distances involved but for me this has always been such a ludicrous scenario and it and it demonstrates how science uh operates in a very narrow band of reality in the sense of, yes, it does great work in science, but they have very narrow band of rules. 
And for me, if you think about the Earth, it's a relatively young planet going around a relatively young star. But out in the Milky Way alone, where we can't even get our head around the number of planets and and uh, and systems that there are, we now realise that for every star that there's probably six to ten planets, of which the six to ten at least two might be in the Goldilocks zone, not too hot, not too cold. So if you extrapolate the numbers, it's just billions upon billions upon billions just in the Milky Way alone that are likely to support life. Now, if just 1% of 1% of 1% of 1% of 1% of those develop life ahead of Earth time by 1,000 years, 5,000 years, 100,000 years, a million years, do you think that they are going to be driving around in petrol-driven cars and jet engine, fuel engine, vehicle, uh, aircraft? The answer is no. If you think about just where our technology has gone just in the last 114 years since 1903 and the Wright brothers, it's just gone exponentially. Well, what if a civilization is a million years ahead of Earth development? We can't even comprehend. We wouldn't even be able to comprehend what a 5,000-year leap would be in technology. So it's absolutely ludicrous. And if we look at our own Earth development, it used to take ships weeks and weeks to cross the oceans. And then with more faster engines, better ships, it's then days and weeks. Aircraft, it used to take so long to go around, circumnavigate around the Earth. Faster and faster aircraft. What was it? In the, in the 50s, the SR-71 could fly around the Earth in about three hours. And that was in the 50s. So what if they're a million years ahead of us, 5,000 years ahead of us? It's a ludicrous argument. They would have developed new methods of propulsion and for what to us seems like insurmountable distances, it's, it's totally illogical to think that we know everything and that's the arrogance of man. Uh, so I personally think that as time goes along, it will be mainstream science who have said already in 2013 that within 20 years, with the onset of new radio telescopes coming online, that within 20 years, so they said that in mainstream science in 2013, so logically that says by 2033, they are going to have detected, radio telescopes will have detected an intelligent radio signal across the vastness of space. Well, if you got that, there's your answer. You, you're going to have life and it will be intelligent life. And then it will only be this argument of distances. But I guarantee you that all the UFOs that are seen and reported all around the world are because they're developed ahead of Earth time. And it's, it's, it really is a, a, uh, a no-brainer for me. And I'm not a scientist, but it, it just doesn't make any sense that if a civilization develops technology way ahead of Earth time that they will have developed faster and faster methods of propulsion. And for, for them, the distances are a bit like us going from London to New York. In reality, it's not going to be a problem. And I think it's only the arrogance of man and our self-importance that we think we're dominant when really we're a very primitive species on the big scale of things. And I think that I'm often asked, 
why do I think that they come? And I think the vast majority of the time is they come and surveil us like where the, um, uh, the, Great Barrier, the Great Barrier Reef. What do we do? We, we turn up. We don't break off the coral because that's a big no-no. We just want to swim with the fish and see them in their natural habitat. And I think that's what most alien species do. I don't think they want to interact with us. And we're probably maybe a bit like the fish in the sea. We're a bit primitive. We, don't, we wouldn't think of talking to an ant on the ground because we, we think we're so much intellectually better. Well, they may think that we're the ant on the ground. So it's a matter of perception. Do I think that there's been some level of interaction with some species? Almost certainly. What you've got to realise is that what we do know of the last 75 years of UFOs is that America have controlled the subject worldwide, have been there at virtually every major sighting worldwide. They turn up and submit intelligence reports, and that's not a coincidence. And I suspect that we only know 10% in the public domain, which means that 90% of this is locked away in special access programs, intelligence services, and a few clandestine officials in government. And very few people really know what's going on. And in that 90%, almost certainly with some species, we've probably had some interaction and it eventually come out but the technology of mainstream science and astronomy i think is pushing that boundary because if in 10 years time uh, they say yeah we've got this intelligent signal then that's the debate over in it intelligence and life out there and but one thing that they're not preparing the world for and the public is this response say that next week they say, yeah, we've detected an intelligence signal from 24 light years away, and it's this planet going around that star. We, it's all in there, blah, blah, blah. There's a level of interaction and communication through science and with this ET species. But then they say, okay, glad you're part of the Cosmic Club. We'll see you next week. Now, for me, I think that's a real possibility. And I think this is kind of... Um, borders on what Stephen Hawking said is that maybe we shouldn't make contact because then we announce that we're here and the history of civilization on the earth is not good what do we do, we go, the Spanish go in and destroy the native South American the Americans go into uh, America and destroy the native Indian population so big organization usually crushes small organization or, or, or society and that's entirely possible when we do have that level of interaction. Now, that, as I see, is, is a perfectly uh, plausible scenario should announcement be made that we have got an intelligence signal across space. We'll see you next week because for them it's like travelling from London to New York. And I don't think the way we are at the moment, the public are in any way being prepared at all for that possibility because we're still locked up in this this uh, ludicrous situation of denial but as science is progressing and we get closer to that kind of breakthrough in astronomy where they detect a signal I think it will be inevitable that the media companies uh, realise that this is going to happen on their watch whether they like it or not and they are going to be the first generations to be around 
when formal acknowledgement is made of life and uh, extraterrestrial intelligence. And so for me, that, whereas in the past it could be hidden away for years and years and years, I think technology is moving at such a pace uh, that inevitably that question of life and an intelligence signal is going to come. And when it does, it answers all the questions. But then we have to be prepared that we're dealing with an advanced species that may be 100,000 years ahead of us in technology. And they might just say, we'll be there next week. And I don't think that unless the TV companies and people on high in government and intelligence services think about that, that I think that you will naturally see TV companies being given the green light to start telling the truth about this subject and the best evidence as in a way to acclimatise people for that very real prospect of them suddenly turning up. They're going to have to do some clear uh, changes in, in strategy because uh, it's a genuine possibility. Mm-hmm. I have a question from Everett in the SOR Space Travelers Club, and I'm going to ask it a little bit differently than what he's asking, but it's relatively the same thing. Out of all the police stories that you have, have you ever had any regarding, after a UFO sighting, a Men in Black sighting or be part of the Men in Black phenomena? Uh, Not... Uh, strictly men in black but certainly um, police officers being pulled in for interview and being questioned and then being told by people in plain clothes uh, never mention this again that's happened on many occasions to police officers Mm -hmm. so what is your opinion then on the men in black are they over there as well well there are there are certainly stories around some UFO cases, not particularly police cases, but I've heard of people turning up and in fact there is uh, uh, even in relation to the Rendlesham Forest case, there are some civilians who claim that people, men in black were uh, operating in the forest or on the nearby roads and had civilians had encounters with men men in black um, but uh, certainly not police officers that I'm aware of. But I do think that it is part of the phenomenon. Uh, quite who they are, what they are, um, I don't know. But I mean, uh, I think the, the the best person to talk to on that is Nick Redfern, uh, who's a prolific author. I'm sure you know him in, in the UFO field. And he wrote a book about the real men in black. And he recounts many, many cases worldwide of shadowy people who wear black suits and as comical as uh, the Hollywood kind of film connotation turns up. There does appear to be some uh, credence to at least some of the reports that they do appear to exist in some capacity, quite what they are, who they are, which agency or whether they're some kind of alien, I don't know, but uh, there does appear to be some evidence that says that, uh, the, that that these people, for want of a better expression, are seen. Getting back to police officers, 
because we haven't really gone into many stories yet tonight about police officer stories, which is actually why we brought you on the show tonight. <laughs> and we kind of got off topic with the Rendlesham, but I'm glad we did. Thank you so much for doing that. Should we well, talk it, about some police cases? I would love to, if you wouldn't mind. How often uh, are they coming in? It's, not, it's never been a flood. Uh, it's an occasional thing uh, every couple of months now at the moment because I'm not prioritizing that at the moment because... I do a lot of work with the magazine now, UFO Truth magazine. It's a, a bi-monthly, uh, so every two months it's 96 pages it's sent direct to your email. Uh, and just in relation to that, before I get up to police cases, and I mentioned it during the break, uh, for the first 50 uh, people who will listen to this show uh, and uh, are sufficiently interested, if you email me at hazeltinegarry at hotmail.com, I'm sure you'll have it on your links on your website, HazeltineGarrettHotmail.com. The first 50 can uh, have a year subscription to the Easy, uh, six issues per year. Uh, for if you're in the UK, £10. And if you're in uh, the US or Canada, $12 currency equivalent. Uh, and you can have a year subscription. So that's a special offer for that. And I'll also make a second special offer for any of the readers that email me uh, or listeners. Uh, who email me and say, I've listened to uh, Dave Scott's show, uh, I will let them choose a free issue of their choice, anywhere from 1 to 23, and it will be sent direct to your email, complimentary, so you can take a look at the magazine for free. Thank you for How's doing that? that for our listeners. That's amazing. Right. Thank you so much. Okay, let's, let's look at some police cases. I thought... We might just go through uh, through some, um, do it in kind of a chronological decades by decades. Sure. Uh, and and uh, and obviously some cases are more interesting than others. Uh, for one for one example, uh, a police officer uh, retired approached me. His name was Police Constable Trevor Blower, and this relates to a case uh, that uh, took place late evening in November of 1969 in a place called Warrington, which is near a town called Stoke-on-Trent in, a, in the county, a geographical area called Cheshire, in England. And basically he was a uniformed police officer and he was out on patrol in a rural area when he gets a radio message to say, look up into the sky and keep an eye out for some strange objects moving across the sky, which he thought was a bit bizarre. He was on his own. Uh, and the next thing, he, he looks up into the sky, and then he sees a formation of nine spheres. So these aren't nine aircraft, they're not nine balloons. Nine spheres in like an arrowhead echelon formation that move past him silently, and he sees it, and then as he goes by, he reports it, and then other police officers in the distance, different geographical positions start to say and he can hear the radio chatter yeah we can see them too well here's the interesting thing the next day he is then told to report to his uh, area headquarters and basically when he gets there he finds that there's about six other police officers there who had all been in different geographical positions they're all taken separately to different rooms where they're interviewed by some civilian 
And at the end of it, they're all told, you will never talk about this again. That's a good little case, kind of, and men in black there, but certainly hints at government stroke and military uh, uh, cover-up or playing down of the subject. Here's another one. Um, in late 1970s, uh, a, a police officer called PC Police Constable Eric Raymond approached me, retired, who said that he was parked up uh, with two other police officers uh, in a rural area, not far from London, but in a rural area, and it was the middle of the night, sort of three in the morning, and then in the distance, they see a bright flash way on the horizon, uh, but it's only for a split second, and they don't really think too much about it, because it only lasts for a split second, and they carry on chatting, and then suddenly just appears in front of them an object that he described as the size of a football field, the width of a football field, approximately just 500 metres from his location, at an altitude of about 500 metres. So this is very low in a rural area with no ambient street lighting. And this object was shining a beam down the width of a football field low to the ground as if it was scanning the terrain, the countryside terrain. But what was even more amazing is that the officer said that there were about five or six smaller objects flying around the larger object all the time. And it was akin to like a, mother, a mothership scenario. And basically they watched this object for several minutes and they were in awe. And then suddenly, like the bull, light bulb, gone. Didn't go up, didn't go left, didn't go right. It just disappeared. And at all times, there was no noise whatsoever. Another case, uh, basically two firearms officers uh, who were live-armed, and they were protecting a senior cabinet member of the Conservative Party, and this will come out in a book that I'm writing. The name has never been released yet, but it will be in the book. They were protecting a senior cabinet, ministry cabinet official, uh, one of the top ministers. Uh, and he was, uh, and they, he was on the way uh, to another destination when they stayed at a halfway house overnight on their way to this destination. And it's in the summertime, and the two officers, the minister is in bed, and uh, the two officers are walking around this country estate, well, just the house, a large country house, uh, and it's one of those lovely mornings where it's absolutely clear blue skies, beautiful sun, and they're walking around with the minister still in bed. It's about four in the morning, five in the morning, beautiful sky, and as they're walking around the outskirts of this big country house, suddenly the sky goes dark and they look up and there is a huge purple cylindrical object hovering above this country house. It's hovering there, literally just above, a few hundred feet above the roof. One of them goes to draw his weapon and his friend says, stop it, I don't think that's going to do any good because this thing is described as the length of a football field and it is huge and it's silent and it's hovering above 
the minister's country residence. They watch it for several uh, seconds, perhaps a minute or so, and then suddenly, in the blink of an eye, it moves silently at speed out to the horizon, where it stops briefly, and then in the blink of an eye, gone and disappeared. That's two firearms officers protecting a government minister, senior minister. Um, on another occasion, you have, uh, on the night of the uh, 30th, going into the 31st of March 1993, you have a major incident, <coughs> excuse me, a major incident involving up to 24 British police officers who track a UFO effectively over six counties of Britain as it moves down the countryside over six large geographical counties, huge area, hundreds of miles, well, many, probably 100 miles or so, several counties, different police officers in different locations, as well as that, an Air Force RAF police team, so military police, also see a huge uh, triangular UFO all low over a military base a, uh, on the same night as the 24 officers and the RAF police. There is a meteorological officer uh, who's a weather expert. He's on one of the military bases and he sees the same object. A fantastic sighting. Many, many witnesses absolutely all over the place in terms of geographical distances. The most, the biggest sighting of all. Uh, in terms of the number of one police officers involved in one case. So those are just a quick rundown of some of the fantastic cases that are out there. Uh, but, I mean, there's, like, lots and lots of sightings. Well, in fact, let me give you an example of how cases come to me. Uh, for example, uh, UFO Truth magazine uh, has uh, runs a two-day international conference uh, where I live uh, in West Yorkshire. Uh, we do a couple of conferences a year, one on one day and two main uh, conferences a two day. And uh, we've held five so far and we get yeah, top people coming from all over the world. Um, people like Robert Salas, May Rodwell, AJ Javad, uh, people like that. Um, now, Peter Robbins, uh, lots of top people. But uh, inevitably, well, we get pretty much sellout crowds. And at the last conference uh, in September, just gone, uh, on two occasions, separately, police officers approached me privately and said, Look, actually, I'm a police officer. Uh, I'm very interested in this subject, and I've also seen something as well. And one of them turned out to be a firearms expert. So if you think about it, a firearms expert, and, it, and but he said, I can't go public because I'm still serving, and he basically said that uh, he would fear for his career. So I said, that's not a problem. I said, I understand your situation. I won't jeopardize your situation. But what I want you to do is prove to me who you say you are. Once you've done that, and he did, uh, and once you've done that, then... Uh, I will make a note of the story, and because you still we hit a little bit of a Skype blip there for a second. 
So, so basically, I was approached by two police officers separately who didn't know, know each other at the last conference in September, and they both told me stories uh, that have both they've both proven to me who they are. So they've both been granted confidential status, and uh, they're great cases. And again, they'll be in the book when they come out. Um, to a certain extent, because of the, the work I do with the magazine and media now, I don't do as much promotion of the database per se that I did prior to the magazine because there's only so many hours in the day kind of thing. Um, but the cases still come in and what I do is for the book, I essentially put all the new cases into a basket ready for inclusion into the book, which I'm about 60% done. Uh, and hopefully that will come out towards the end of this year. Because uh, it's, uh, I find that it's actually quite hard to do it over and above running a magazine. Uh, it's kind of the editors. Uh, you don't see many editors who get books out. And that's the curse of the editor. But I'm determined to get one out because so many people have said it would make a great book for all the police cases. So, yes, the cases still come in. It's not a flood. And the cases on the database, and I must stress this, I'm not one for statistics because... I've seen it how in the police uh, and probably any organisation you can manipulate statistics to say anything you want. But uh, I have done some st brief statistical work on the database of cases. And of the 550 cases, what I can say is that 70%, approximately 70%, are multiple police officer witnesses, so two or more, many with four, five, six to an event, which means very good for corroboration, etc. So basically, that's one important thing. And the other thing is that uh, the cases that I've got, uh, there, there are many other big, bigger cases that I'm looking at that, again, can only form part of the book because of their significance uh, for when they come out. So it's something to be looking forward to. That when it does come out, it, uh, there's n there's no database like this anywhere in the in the world. Uh, there is a website that does cover police sightings, I think, in the states, but not to the depth I've got, and not to one country. I've often thought that the Proof Force Police database could be replicated by any country uh, with someone with an interest. Ideally, it would be better if you were a serving or a retired officer when you create it, because a police officer uh, knows when you're talking to another police officer instinctively the certain kind of language in the same way, fireman to a fireman, a nurse to a nurse, you have your own kind of internal things that you can say that kind of corroborate who you are. And that's important, certainly with police officers that I've found. Uh, many officers in the past have spoken to me and told me stories that they've never told their wives, their girlfriends, their partners, their families, because of this fear of ridicule and the perceived risk of their career. Uh, at certain times during the, the last 15 years of my research, I've had police officers almost in tears when they've, when they've been allowed to offload a story that they've carried around with them for 15, 20, 30 years often and never told the families. And it's a, it, it, you almost like, 
like a uh, counsellor because people have kind of had this grief or trauma of getting seen something profoundly strange and have no release uh, and, and as people will say to kind of like cover things up is not the best way to move forward when you're talking about this subject it, it's extremely difficult for many officers to do it because they risk that ridicule factor certainly amongst colleagues and they do genuinely perceive that their careers may be affected no different from pilots in fact I, I, over the years I've had journalists tell me stories uh, and they say I could never say this publicly because it would affect my career and I've always said that this is a terrible indictment that's being put on all these people and if you think about it of all the millions of people who reported sightings worldwide over the last 75 years you know and people say to me how many cranks do you get well I can honestly say that in the 15 years of being public with my research and don't forget a lot of members of the public attack me all the time with sightings I can genuinely say it's a handful of cranks in 15 years now most of the people are totally sincere yes some of them will have made inevitably just genuine mistakes but have been affected by it but most people are entirely sincere we have to begin to deal and deconstruct this terrible uh, stigma that's been attached to this subject we have to break down the media barriers which I think will happen as I said before science is moving at such a we're going to have, inevitably have to deal with the subject probably within the next 15 years and that may seem like a long time but in terms of evolution that's a, that's a blink of an eye and so it is going to come uh, and disclosure breakthrough whatever you want to call it it is coming and we have to start preparing for it we only have about four minutes left with you tonight is there any story that just stands out as so unbelievable that you've heard that you would even question it coming from a police officer? Um, well, well, I'll tell you what, what, what made me question an officer. Uh, this is a great case. Again, two uniformed police officers who were marked, uh, parked up uh, early morning um, in near Oxford. Uh, in England which is kind of about 100 miles away from London and basically they parked up early morning two police officers uh, in a marked police vehicle and uh, suddenly uh, they see an object that they describe as the size of three football fields and they describe it as a black flying triangle and they said it was just above treetop level and it was the size of three football fields well, when this uh, officer contacted me and told me this, a good way for a, a, a police officer is to validate. And I said, three football fields? Come on, how do you know it was the size of three football fields? And he went, because we saw it over three football fields, and which was a great validation. So there you have a huge black flying triangle, silent, just above treetops, seen by two police officers in a, an urban area. Now, why, if it's stealth, as some people would speculate, 
why would you put a stealthy object that large where it's going to be seen? It makes no sense at all. So it ain't stealth and we don't move anything like stuff. So that's just kind of like one of these remarkable stories that are all going to be in the book. But a great story and a great validation moment. The size of three football fields. Why? Because it was over three football fields. Great answer. Now, are we talking American football or that soccer stuff you think you guys play over there? Well, I don't really think there's much difference in the length of either, is there? I would think are they both... both I thought the soccer yeah. pitch was a little bit bigger. Well, it may be, but it won't be that much bigger. Well, either way, either way, it is phenomenal that these stories are going on, and hopefully, and I guess you hope as well, not just for the sake of the website, but when you have a police officer come on out, it just gives and lends, in my opinion, that much more credibility to the story because these are people out there who are out there on a nightly basis protecting us, trying to do what's best to help keep us safe and if they come out and say something I'm going to say nine and a half times out of ten, it's probably going to be a true real story with real information what do you think? Absolutely, police officers do not suffer fools gladly and they they do not like putting their head above the parapet so when you do get an officer that comes forward who does do so, then you best believe him because they're not going to make it up. They wouldn't uh, risk the ridicule of, of a lie. And once again, tell us what's on your website if people head on over to find you online. Well, the best way to find me online is through the UFO Truth magazine, which is www.ufotruthmagazine.co.uk. There's links there to the Proofforce site. The Proofforce site is www.proofforcepolicedatabase.co.uk, uh, where all the cases are laid out in summary terms, just brief pre-see details of all the cases. Uh, but you'll find loads. And uh, like I say, special officers, anybody can email me, said they've listened to the show, they can request a free complimentary copy of any one of 1 to 23 issues. Uh, just one of the 23 issues today and those the first 50 can have a subscription at a discounted price for the year of 10 pounds in the uk and 10 uh, 12 dollars in the states and canada gary heseltine thank you so much for being on spaced out radio tonight what an absolute pleasure for our audience to have you on and i have our listeners in the chat room saying gary you gotta come back on you got to tell well, us well, more stories. Well, 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 why don't we focus on police next time, and I'll bring you 50 cases uh, that we'll talk about. Well, if you're, police cases. if you're free, I have May 31st is my next date to book, which would be June 1st for you. Send me an email with that, I will. and I'll check it against my diary. And, Excellent. Uh, if I can, I will. All right, it's been my a friend. pleasure. All Thank right. you very much. Thank you, Gary. Good night. Good night. If you're listening in on the Space Out Radio side, you hear Mr. Ron Bubblefoot Thal rocking us on out. Bubblefoot is the official music of the mighty SOR. Tomorrow night on the show, Brent Cullen Shepard is going to join us. He helps out Ken Johnson. Remember we had him on just two weeks ago talking NASA, the Apollo missions, and aliens on the moon? Yeah, Brett's pretty studious in this as well. 
and he's coming on the show tomorrow night starting at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern time at spacedoutradio.com. We want to say goodnight to everyone listening in on WQEE 99, Rock the Key, down in Noonan, Georgia, and on 107.7 FM in New Orleans on the United Public Radio Network. We are terrestrial, so if you want us on your terrestrial station, hit up your program directors. We are ready to rock on this end, and we want to take it that one step further. Thank you so much for tuning on in. Remember, you can find this show and others on our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show, TalkStream Live, RadioGuide.fm, Stitcher, iTunes, and tune in. Check us out on our website, SpacedOutRadio.com, and don't forget to become a patron at Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com for as low as a buck a month. I will talk to you in exactly 21 hours from now. Thank you so much for tuning us in. Do me a favor, my friends. Tell a friend. Mr. Bumblefoot, take us home. <laughs>